from his lair and describe him with adjectives. Whoa! Hello there! You are listening to the Quarter to Three Movie Podcast for The Revenant. My name is Tom Chick, and I am here with Christian Mranlowski. Uh, there, Mranlowski? He's a squirrel. <laughs> and with our The Revenant tagline, Kelly Wand. Can you leave that on? Oh, never mind. <laughs> I guess that's my answer. They're called no. shorts for a reason. Oh. <laughs> Uh, you can tell Tom Hardy's great at skinning by his dew. Mm. Hmm. It's like Hamburg, but with better cuisine. Hmm. Deus Ex Seneca. Oh, man, that's a reach. That That's a serious reach, Kelly Wand. I don't even understand it. Is it. Isn't a Seneca an Indian tribe? I got oh. three more. Yeah. Oh, three more. Okay, keep them coming. Really? White man's bear den. Uh, what are the other two? It's like Last of the Mohicans, but with a white protagonist. What's the last one? <laughs> it's like The Edge, but with a bear. <laughs> okay, let's go with that last one, Kelly. Want to yep. print it up? Tough room. Tough okay. room. Let's get the presses rolling. Let's get these posters out. <sighs> uh, before we talk more about the movie we saw this week, Kelly Wand... What if Dingus and I were pitted against one another in a life-or-death battle, but instead of having like a knife and sharp claws and teeth and a musket, we only had our wits and our knowledge of movie plots? How would you judge which of us would be victorious? Uh, just a, just a saying. Just announcing it verbally. <laughs> oh, so are we just going to skip a contest and you're going to pick a winner? No, I just misunderstood the question. Here we go. Yes. After a title so, gonna, so what, what you're going to do is you're going to read us a plot synopsis and from IMDb, and whether yeah. whichever one of us, Dingus or I, can, can uh, guess the movie first has prevailed. Yeah, but since it's Revenant Week, one of you can crawl out of a, a hole if you guess wrong and then re-guess. I see. By burning your throat. <laughs> Okay. Uh, okay. Not burning. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> that's the part Dingus, Dingus didn't enjoy. <laughs> not correct. Medical procedure name. <laughs> Seriously, dude. Uh, Look, I know the word cauterize. Thank you. I may not know how to say it correctly. Ding. But burn. All right. Here's your. Okay, Dingus, you're already in the hole. You have to climb out of this. Just for being <laughs> troublesome. <laughs> The gavel has been banged. Uh, after a title sequence over which nature sounds are heard, I didn't write this. Day of the part. Animals. Day of the Animals. People are copying my style. It's not good. good guess, Tom. That's Thank not a movie. Day of the Animals is too a movie with Leslie Nielsen. Day of the Animals? Yeah. All the animals. Like the, the ozone layer thins out and causes all animals to go mad, including people. And Leslie Nielsen actually tries to rape a woman. Um, and animals attack and kill people, like birds, dogs, bears, a cougar. They all attack people. They, they the animals. Look it up. A cougar was the last one. <laughs> Tom's like, a cougar. Well, they would attack people anyway, so that one's one of the least dramatic. It's like, of course it's going to attack people. But Sounds to me like uh, nothing's changing. Animals already do this, and so do we. 
Not dogs. Like there's this a lot of rape there, going the on. family dog, uh, like some some family's oh, dog that goes crazy. And, yeah, yeah, like an evil dog bit. Yeah. Boy, ozone. So ozone equals light side of the force. That was the premise of this movie. It was before. Uh, yeah, it's, it was sort of a. Is he playing the same character as he did in Airplane? That would make it a lot funnier. No, he was playing the same character he played in Fantastic Planet. Boy, it's planet. So forbidden planet. Forbidden voice. Shoot. Whatever that early one was. The forbidden one. Voyage. Fantastic Forbidden Planet. Don't go on this voyage. That one, that black and white sci-fi movie that's The Tempest, but science fiction. Leslie <sighs> Nielsen is in. Which Something about the one with the huge ramp that the spaceship has to go up on to get everybody off of Earth. Day the Earth stopped. Right. <laughs> stopped. That's the, that's the mockbuster version of it that I think Asylum made. I was bummed when the Earth didn't stand still in that movie, and I was like, what's the classic part? I thought it was going to it was a metaphor. Yeah, I know, but when I'm five and it's, that's the name <laughs> right. of it. I was like, what's them? They're like, it's giant ants. I'm like, oh, okay. Could have put that in the title. Spoiler! Oh, <laughs> oh my God, way to ruin that movie for you. Uh, Tom, you're now in a hole. Okay, both <laughs> you guys got to climb out. All right, we're... So we're, we're at the same point, so give it to us. So uh, after animal sounds play over a title sequence... <clears throat> go in. Uh, we see a shot of Native Americans swimming underwater. Pocahontas and her brother, as others on the shore, Pocahontas. point to Pocahontas. The new, the new world. Ah, uh, yes. Dingus takes it. Dingus beat you on a Malik? No, but that was one of Dingus's favorite movies that year, and I was all like, well, whatever, I don't even understand. Was it, it? Was not, it was not one of them. It was my favorite movie that year. Yeah. Yeah, but was it one of your favorite movies? Yes, it was okay. one. Okay, all right, well done, well done. <laughs> when if a movie is in your is your number one movie, it's still in your top ten. Good if point. the day the, if the Earth stands still, there won't be a year because it'll be the right. same day all the time. Uh, New World is notable because it's when uh, a fellow named Emmanuel Lubezki started shooting all of Malick's movies. Hmm. And what does that guy have to do with this, Tom? Good question, Dingus. Uh, but unfortunately, you're the one that has to tell people what we saw this week. So, Dingus, why don't you tell the listeners what that has to do with this podcast? I just want to say – well, no, I'll save that actually for later. I apologize. I was about to reveal something early. But let's just say that this week we saw The Revenant, mm. a 2015 American epic biographical Western adventure drama movie about the unbearable heaviness of being. Mm-hmm. It was directed by Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu and written by him with Mark L. Smith Ugh. based in part on the novel by Michael Punky. Uh, it stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Tom Hardy, Donald Gleason, Will Poulter, and Forrest Goodluck. <laughs> The Revenant is rated R for Strong Frontier Combat. (laughs) (laughs) What? That's a thing, Kelly One. Kelly One, that is totally a thing. (laughs) Strong Strong Frontier Combat. And violence, violence including gory images. Asexual assault. Wait, just uh, one. one We're ordering from the drive-through. Asexual assault, language, and brief nudity. Isn't that included in the sexual assault? 
Actually, no. I'm no, not actually. It's included officer. in the uh, top. top. Is over. Oh. Uh, I'd like to add. Yes, Kelly Wand. Is there anything that the MPAA overlooked that should be in the, the ratings? Uh, uh, they did better than me this year. Mm. Since I forgot to write it till just now. <laughs> well, what comes to mind that you think they should have brought up? This is what I came up with while Dingus was saying the real ones. Raw food, pioneering, and some nature. I'll try to work harder. <laughs> How about breathing on lens? Did that come in? That's... I have a question for you guys. What do American Sniper, Ride Along, Taken 3, Cloverfield, and Lone Survivor have in common? All the titles are senses. Kaiwan, <laughs> <laughs> you are now in a hole. Not only uh, you can't take yourself out of it, if there's a lot of dirt on top of you and a heavy canteen with a man on it. It's nice and warm in this hole. Stupid stuff. What those movies all have in common, or used to, what those movies had in common before this weekend, is they were the top five January opening, uh, January box office opening weekends. Oh, wow. The Revenant aged out Lone Survivor. But The Revenant wasn't even out in January. Yeah, it was. What are you talking about? Well, I mean, it opened in December because I no, saw it. No, it had a very limited opening. Uh, I think it, it was only at two theaters. I mean, it's a limited, limited opening. It was at two theaters in L.A. So, Kelly, well, I don't know if you know this, but a lot of times movies will have a limited release just to get right under the wire uh, before the end of the year to be eligible for the year's Academy Awards. Right. So that's what happened with The Revenant. Its release date uh, was January 7th. Uh, so it's opening. But then you should have to lose the opening weekend. You can't get both. You can't have your cake and eat it too. So it's opening weekend, which is January seventh, which doesn't count the the whatever take it made from the two screens in L.A. and I don't know maybe two in New York, uh, is the large the fifth largest opening weekend of any movie in January, coming behind American Sniper. Things is really fond of that one. Uh, Ride Long, Taken Three, Clover in Cloverfield. Uh, so it made thirty eight million dollars. Um, it came in at number two behind Star Wars. There's actually some speculation that it might catch up with Star Wars. Star Wars, I think, did $41 million this weekend. Uh, on Metacritic, the average rating from various reviews for The Revenant is 77. On Rotten Tomatoes, the percentage of reviews for The Revenant that are positive, 81%. Wow. Wait, Star Wars beat right along? <laughs> Why, on what metric are you comparing them? <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine a metric or it didn't, but yeah, what, which, just plot wise. In what regard, huh, okay. How come Lando wasn't in either movie? Are you sure? No, I'm not. Do I sound sure? I'm sorry, Tom, what were you saying? Numbers. <laughs> what I was saying, Kelly Wan, is that I would like you to give us a Revenantopsis. <laughs> I heard an 87 and a 77, I thought. Uh, there was no 87, I'm afraid. There was a 38. There was a 2. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. There was an 81. Right. There was a 77. There was a 5. There was a 1, 2, 3, and 4. There was a 3 from Taken 3. I mentioned Star Wars. It's episode 7. There was a, a 1, like Lone Survivor. You can read that as 1. As a right, 1. Yeah. So one that's all had for the numbers. Cloverfield has an O, 0. No one is zero aren't the same. Roman numeral I. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so if you haven't seen The Revenant, I, we, I, Back I, in the hole I want to warn you that Kelly Wand is about to tell you the entire plot of The Revenant in a synopsis form. He's Just a, like the trailer did. 
Oh my god, no kidding. I was so glad I didn't see this is one of those things that I am so thankful I didn't see the trailer for. I'm so enraged I did. Oh really? Enraged. Is it that bad? Yeah. Well it gives everything away. I mean all of it's basically it's everything. and everything's given away, yeah. Oh. Like, I, and I got into this. Well we'll talk about it. Kelly Wan, go ahead and spoil the plot and then we'll talk about why it it really screws it up to watch the trailer. I don't expect much sympathy from you guys on it, but so I'm fessing up that, yeah, I did screw myself. Oh, well, you should be more like me and Dingus and stop watching trailers, Kelly Wong. You know what? I think this is the movie that turned me. Like, Fine. I was always too lazy to do it. And then I'm like, you know, this was too good a movie for that shit. Like, I'm not I'm not doing this. Well, you know what? I do have a few more numbers. Uh, on Kelly Wong and Tom Chick's top ten list of 2015, The Revenant was number five. On Dingus's top ten list of the movies of 2015, The Revenant was number one. So those are important numbers. So Kelly, I know my seven was Larry Gay. So that's like, all the math that we've got, Kelly. Want now give us a plot synopsis of the Revenant? Go. Wait, what do you want to call it? I don't think I, the, the Revenant plot synopsis. The Revenopsis. <laughs> Tom Hardy has my haircut, so for meetings with coworkers, he uses the 1820s version of Rogaine and puts a beaver on his head. Uh. Although wearing marsupials really helps cranial hair issues. I could have told him that. He and Leonard DiCaprio are on weird terms because something happened during a flashback. Some other characters hang out with them and shoot stuff and tell dirty jokes in Pawnee. During one of the long tracking shots of Cedars, I Google Translate one as, Hey, what make palefaces fire water and wigwam so heap of jism to keep its pants up? Much like everything that happened in the 1820s, I guess he had to be there. Leonard's son is half Italian, so the other dudes are understandably all a little uncomfortable in his company. Their job's to shoot stuff and skin off the fur and then sell it, although they also wear fur because it's cold. So if they just stayed home, they'd break even. I lean over to the pyramid of skulls beside me and murmur, being born in the past would suck. This elicits a couple grins. Over breakfast, one guy finishes his eggs, dabs his mouth with a napkin, yawns, burps, farts, burps again, and goes, Hey, there's an arrow being shot at an Indian by my throat. No, wait, I mean... <clears throat> one of the arrows helps a man put out the campfire, but he catches fire, so another trade-off. Everybody gets shot or into a canoe. <laughs> Unlike this last... <laughs> Trying to match the cinematography, <laughs> prose wise. Seven Just trying to break it down logistically. Since this is radio, I just feel like you're there. Atmosphere is important. Unlike his last three hour movie, Leo does make it into a lifeboat this time. The war chief of the Indians looks uncharacteristically solemn for once as his Manitou approaches and goes, Uh, we won. The noble savage nods stoically. Then he's all, What of my daughter Sequoia? I brought her to the battle for some reason, then forgot to watch her. The Manitou's all, The white men have taken her. To do with, I know not. The overwrought war chief's all. Mm -hmm. Then he's all, What of my nephew? Shortcake. The Manitou shakes his head sadly. He's all, Squaw Berry Shortcake. The mood turns somber. 
When a passing brave trips and spills garbage on his feet, he musters only a single tear. Meanwhile, the furriers decide for narrative reasons to split into three groups. 98% of the group will head to the nearest fort for safety, while Leo and his son and Tom Hardy will stay behind and get attacked by a bear. The son's all, wait, how is that three groups? Tom Hardy snarls at him and draws his knife, but Leo pulls the son aside and goes, Quit out mathing, everybody. It's the color of your skin that matters. The son's all, but that's just a negligible difference in keratin. It's an epidermal pigmentation variation. Nobody ever stabs anybody over hair color. We're basically all just M&Ms. Leonard's all, ugh. You sound just like your mom. A bunch of stuff with a bear happens. Leonard tricks the bear by getting mauled by it. Then, like I do at work every day, gets it to leave him alone by playing dead. (laughs) (laughs) Although I'm not playing dead. Tom Hardy's all, playing dead's good enough for me, and starts digging a hole. I'm not sure about that, Tom Hardy. Leonard's son's all, hey, I don't think burying my dad alive is going to help his bear wounds. Tom Hardy's all, this is because the color of your skin, and stabs him. The son pokes his stab wound, sighs, and asks Tom Hardy, how is this helping the color of my skin? Tom Hardy kills him. The young character's all, oh, I'm not, I'm sure I'm okay with this. But not, but not sure I'm okay with this. He shakily raises a musket, points it at Tom Hardy's face, and goes, Uh, how do you load this thing? Tom Hardy's all, give me that, you minx. Since Leonard's mostly dead, we'll just sprinkle a little dirt on him. Since his son's totally dead, we won't bury him at all. You follow? The young character's all, wait, what? Who took the daughter? And why are you talking like a pirate? General Leah looks over at me and rasps, Han Solo was a space pirate. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm all, and to the end, a terrible one. Leonard's Italian son was wrong. Being buried alive does heal his dad's mangled spinal column. But now he's got bigger problems. He's on a horse, being chased by Indians. He tricks them by riding off a cliff. Although falling and mauling don't affect him, Leonard finds the cold annoying. So to stay warm, he takes all the warm organs out of the dead horse and slithers naked inside its cold carcass to spend the night. This reminds me of the classic Thor drops a kid into a whale's brain scene from in the heart of the sea. So I lean over to the canoe sitting beside me and go, since Ron Howard directed Splash, he's more our merman Melville. Hmm. The canoe ignores me for a second, then slowly tips. The Indians look down at Leonard, groping his way into the horse's bowels far below. They're all, ugh. They ride away in disgust. Leonard makes an Indian friend by starving, but tragically the man dies in a tree in an off-screen rope accident. Meanwhile, Tom Hardy and the young person make it to Fort White Man. What? Well, it was kind of a bummer. Dingus. In an off-screen rope accident. He got entangled. It was tough back then. Right. The wind was really fierce. Yeah. The commandant saw, great work on getting massacred, guys. Here's your survival bonuses. By the way, whatever happened to that Leonard guy? I heard he's pretty tenacious when it comes to bear attacks and Oscar noms. Tom Hardy's all, uh, I murdered him. I mean the sun. I mean the sun's out. I mean, no. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't see that coming, huh? 
The young character's all, I don't want you stinking blood money. He throws it onto the commandant's table. Tom Hardy's all, damn you both to heaven and back. I saw Leonard die with me own eyes. I swear to it. I wasn't responsible. This I swear also. And there's no such things as bears. To this I affix me very name. A raccoon walks in and goes, hey, DiCaprio just showed up. Says his dreams about a levitating woman aren't pertinent. Just a Birdman callback. Tom Hardy's all, uh, you're right back. He tiptoes to the door while they all stare at him. Goes, look, a bear behind you. Then dashes through it and slams it behind him, shouting, so long, losers. Eventually, he comes out of the closet and tiptoes to the right door. Then steals a horse and rides off, screaming triumphantly again something about losers. Then he has to come back one last time to grab his hat and his money off the table. The young character looks at the commandant and goes, don't know about y'all, but I'm starting to believe him. Tom Hardy rides to a camera shot with a boulder in it. The cavalry guy's all, Hey, you're under arrest. One second, just looking for my pistol here. What's your problem? Leonard asks the seasoned veterans of the camp if they're interested in helping him track down a horse thief and murderer, but they decline or aren't listening. Leonard gets out a horse and canters a couple seconds, then dismounts by a lake as Tom Hardy walks on screen. Tom Hardy's all, you killed my boy, now y'all are gonna pay. Leonard's all, even my dialogue isn't safe from you. A bunch of Riverside grunting ensues. Some Indians ride up and watch for a bit. (laughs) One's all, it's like the end of Gangs of New York, kinda. (laughs) (laughs) Remember he's fighting Daniel? No. Yeah, Yeah. Daniel Dillo. Yeah. The girl Indians all... It seemed a happy hunting ground had become tainted by the greed and white man's soul. Oh, Jesus, really? <laughs> Do this happen? Angus. That's why it's my number five, because she's in it. <laughs> right. Her best role. They all start disagreeing with her, yelling and bickering, while Leonard cuts off Tom Hardy's fingers and Tom Hardy bites off Leonard's ear. Then he tries to stick his finger in Leonard's ear to hurt him, but now he can't because of the missing finger. Roaring a defiance, he explodes. The sachem nods gravely. He's all, man versus nature. It always ends same way. Sometimes. The other Indians roll their eyes and start arguing with him loudly as the girl Indian nods at Leonard. Her eyes' subtitles are all, I have no words. His eyes' subtitles are all, huh? What? They ride off, more dignified than ever, still bickering. Leonard watches chest heaving, then looks at us and goes, suck it, Hemsworth. The end. All right, uh, Dingus, why don't you explain to everyone why on earth is this better than any other movie you saw in 2015? Why on earth? Why would you ask it that way? Yeah, what, I mean, what, you've obviously got to like it quite a bit. Explain yourself. You liked this better than any other movie you saw last year. You saw a lot of them. You even saw that Star Wars thing, which we're hugely fond of. How could yes. you like this more than Fury Road, you bastard? Yeah, yeah, you liked this most of all, of all the movies you saw in 2015, so we want to hear why you liked it so much. Did you watch Fury Road wrong? And what was the deal with, with this? Uh, I watched everything wrong. Uh, we we actually have a listener named Emmett Coffin who says that when he was in the uh, when he went to see it, his question for us is, uh, did the audience in your theater laugh when the bear fell on DiCaprio? They did it in mine. Really? Man, mine didn't. <laughs> no, mine didn't either. Mine, mine didn't. Mine is a 
Yeah, my audience was like just stock still throughout. Yeah. Uh, so Emmett, like, oh. Emmett Coffin's audience laughed when the bear fell on uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. Just wanted to let you guys know that. Yeah. Uh, at any rate, um, I, I, maybe I they were just laughing though because it. Was I don't like, know quite how to defend uh, choosing a movie as the number one movie of the year. You don't this, have to defend it. I just wanted you to go first and explain us why you liked it so much. Oh, that's, okay. Well, that's fine. Uh, Kelly wants the one who's like, "Yeah, you didn't like it as much as Fury Road." No, I just want to know didn't. why you liked it so much. Uh, I'm crazy like about it. Song. Part of it is the father son thing. Uh, I'll be uh, totally honest about that. Um, the uh, the weird thing with him and his son early on, which I kept trying to find different um, uh, we'll, we'll get into this, but different like oh maybe it's this, maybe it's that, like different twists that might happen but never happened. Uh, but but this way where he's he's trying to protect his son and he's trying to um, uh, he's trying to find this way to be stern with him and tender with him. You know, within the same sort of bubble, where he he's saying, you know, he, you know, he's smacking him and saying, you know, cut it out. You, you have to be invisible. You can't do the, you can't do this. No matter what, no matter how you talk, they're going to see your skin. Uh, you're my son. In the next scene, you're my son. You're my son. Um, that the beauty of that understanding of uh, of that parenting thing, um, uh, I think it's because of my strong reaction to how much I loved Sicario, which was another of my top 10 movies. Uh, I, I, I guess this, the, the way this movie understands how a parent is going to deal with revenge, uh, when their child is taken away from them, uh, and, and, and in the different sort of exigency in his specific circumstance in this movie and the way it's shot, the difficulties of the shoot that it, it, as far as it looks like, the way it's shot, uh, how beautiful it is. Um, there's no, there's nothing I thought was, uh, more favorite to me. I'm not going to say more better because it's just my favorite movie of the year for a lot of those reasons. Kelly Wand, what makes it your fifth favorite movie of the year? You're, you're a hard sell. Why, why were you so into The Revenant? Well, I was annoyed with the trailer, but it was like just, it's like a really hot woman coming on to me. Yeah, right. Fine. So this, I, Kelly, just I want to get back to that in a second. But th- your, why it's your favorite? But this is exactly why. This is why I treasure not watching trailers. I mean, I know whatever I in to Dingus, you said the you pronounce the director's name a way I've never heard before. Is that the way you actually pronounce it? Or I'm looking at the accents. There, there's an accent on the oh, end. Who knows how to read those? Day, yeah, and it looks like it's pronounced Inyaritu. Because the the end has that oh that banana that squiggly that over it and the has an accent of use. It's just in so it looks like it would be pronounced. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's a long name. It's Alejandro Gonzalez. Inyata. Well, that I got, but the the last part I don't know how to say his name. Uh, well, but at any reason, at any rate, I I love him as a director. I, uh, I, I you know I like the stuff that that he's done. Uh, so for that reason, I knew I wanted to see this. So anytime a trailer for it came on, I, I stopped looking. Uh, so one of the, the great pleasures of this movie, and pleasure's not really appropriate word, but I had no idea this is a movie about a guy who gets mauled by a bear. And this, right. by the way, is is the is how every description of this leads with. is a guy gets mauled by a bear and yeah. left for dead. Yeah. So when that bear attack happened, that literally blindsided me. 
And uh, I, I sat there with my head literally in my hands going, oh, fuck, oh, fuck. Like, I could not believe that scene because yeah. I, I thought I was watching the protagonist, and I'm like, wait a minute. How's he going to get out of this? This is going to kill uh, this you're guy. You're so lucky. I got so deprived. It was so awesome having no idea that the bear attack was going to take place. I mean, I knew Revenant. It's obviously about some guy who is either undead or comes back for revenge or something. But I was – I had no idea that was coming, and that that just makes it uh, – you know, I, I, I believe that's how Inaritu wants you to experience the movie. Exactly, and from the moment you see the Cubs, I mean, that's what you're supposed to feel. I, I agree. Yeah. So, Kelly Wan, I'm sorry, go ahead and get back to – so you watched the trailer. Uh, yeah, you, and I just tried to tune it out of my head as best I could, but I'm really jealous that you had that experience. God, I had no idea that was coming. And when you see those cubs and you see the way he's lurking, you're going, oh, God, fuck, where's the mom? See, I didn't even think of that until the mom's in the back, and I'm like, oh, I see. I'm like, oh, cute, bear cub. Wait a minute. <laughs> and yeah. the mom stands up, yeah. Right. Uh, all right, yeah. so, I'm sorry. Get it. Explain to us why you liked it so much. Even though well, just as well, Dingus is drawn like his zone is parenting themes, and I just love movies about frontier brutality, and it's just so beautifully shot. The cinematography is so amazing. The acting is great, and I loved it as an adventure story, and um, it just really sucked me in. I was really invested in the characters. Kelly Wan, did you love that Brett Ratner was one of the producers? <laughs> <sighs> Was he? Really? He was. I couldn't believe that. Yeah. You know, what are you going to do? So, had, couple, go ahead. hands in a lot of pies, though. I mean, you know, to be fair, he's a terrible director, but, but he's done some pretty fair producing, whatever that means. Maybe he just kept his hands off it. Hey, if Brett Ratner wants to throw money at you, take it. Yeah. So I just don't let him direct your script. You know, that's all you got to know. Yeah. So, Tom, why is it your number five? Uh, so, I, um, uh, I, my favorite thing about this movie, I would say the star of this movie um, – actually, let me back up a little bit. Uh, I, the, the, this is a story that's been floating around Hollywood for a while. Uh, it's based on a real-life story of this guy, Hugh Glass, who was mauled by a bear, left behind, and had to crawl back to civilization. Uh, it was adapted from a book by a guy named uh, Mark Smith, who I can only imagine what that original adaptation is like. Because you don't know who Mark Script is, Mark Smith is, unless you watch crappy horror movies such as Vacancy and right. Vacancy Two. Um, Vacancy is a dippy horror movie where Luke Wilson and Kate Beckinsale stay in a motel. Yeah, and, and it's it, there's nothing. I mean, vacant, it, it, it's I guess it's, the idea is that ooh, motels are creepy. But the, the conceit of this horror movie is that Frank Whaley, who runs the motel, secretly has cameras in the rooms. And he sets up snuff kills that he's going to tape and sell. It, it's ridiculous. It's stupid. Heavy-handed. It's not scary. Make it sound better than it is. Exactly. Right. And it's nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so Mark Smith, that's his claim to fame is he did these, these crappy horror movies. Um, and he got first crack at this adaptation of a story about a guy who got mauled by a bear. Uh, what I love about this movie <laughs> is I kind of feel like in a reader's last movie, Birdman, obviously a very personal story, very um, – Self-indulgent, very much about like the, street, the the struggle of creative people. Yeah. Uh, I can see how it might alienate Process. some folks. Um, so when he is given this material, which is basically a brutal survival drama adapted from a guy who does crappy horror films, what I love about uh, The Revenant is how he puts his stamp on this. And I've got to give him credit for it because this Mark L. Smith fella can't have done this. He makes this a, a story – a cosmic level story 
not quite Terrence Malick level because it's still very much a very focused adventure, but with that level of, of majesty and and overarching like perspective on, mm-hmm. on how you look at the world, um, these two characters who aren't just antagonistic to each other but who represent completely opposite worldviews um, – he just takes this survival story, and he makes this hugely sophisticated cosmic drama out yeah. of it. Uh, so that's why it was my number five. Uh, and mainly, mainly my number five, the, the star of this movie, not just Inaridu's script is great. Uh, I certainly love the performances. Tom Hardy was amazing. The star of this movie is a, is a cinematographer named Emmanuel Lubezki, who I think you first notice him when he's worked with Alfonso Cuaron on Children of Men, and he has this documentary filmmaker style where the camera moves along and it even gets blood on the lens. Um, then he did Gravity with uh, uh, Cuaron. Um, yeah. He did Birdman, which was famous for being all one take, even though there were some cheats in there. Uh, and he's done all of Malick's movies, Terrence Malick's movies, since The New World. Right. Uh, so for me, The Revenant is amazing for what Lubezki does with the camera – and how he does it, uh, and just how beautiful this movie looks. And I, I kind of feel like one of the things I love about Lubezki, it seems to me he feels that editing is a crutch. Like, he does not want to <laughs> cut, and I love that about him. Yeah, I kind of – I'm okay, go ahead. I'm with you on this. Go ahead. And that's it. So that's – I could just talk it for <laughs> So those, those are reasons why it's, it's one of my top ten. Those are some no, of the things I'm, I'm really, really interested in hearing what you have to say about that, about his, his – uh, unwillingness to edit or or why he feels that way as far as it being well the thing like in birdman it's all because it's it's partly not all because but it's partly this nod to being about live theater and theater you can't cut you can't edit uh it's a great stunt in birdman which is about the difference between a, a movie actor doing theater um but here the lack of cutting is initially it is basically to express brutality um, to not let you look away from terrible things that are happening, first during that amazing camp attack, but mainly during that bear attack. Yeah. Um, the fact that that bear attack does not cut and then it goes on and the bear leaves and comes back and leaves and comes back, um, it's just, just unrelenting. It's an unrelenting scene, and it is shot unrelentingly. Uh, and we've seen like monsters attack people. You know, like Jaws is, is still horrific in its own way. But we, I don't think we've ever seen anything this explicit. You no. know, you've seen you've seen train bears and CG bears, and they jump on someone, and right, might right, be a right. blood effect. But just the the ripping and the tearing and the turning it's the over. worst death you can imagine. It really is, and the thing is, yeah. Kelly Wand is you don't have to imagine it because it's so explicitly presented. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And he's screaming like it's not. He's not doing a movie star thing yeah. either. It's just getting fucking wailed on. But he's also not giving up. Like there's a lot of characterization. I, I love movies where you the way a character moves expresses a lot about their personality, yeah. um, and that's how like he has to get the musket. It's just it keeps going. It's very well choreographed. Um, one, one of the really chilling bits there, and just as you're, I mean, all of it is. But there's one point where like his hand is up, just trying to stave the bear off, and the bear bites yeah. his hand. Right. And, yeah. I mean, it's already terrible enough, but when you think, oh god, yeah. it's just it's adding insult to injury. Yeah. There's so no way. Like, get this yeah. hand out of my face. I'm not going <laughs> to even put up with this. Like, yeah. Uh, and even when the bear like steps on his head, mm-hmm. and when it's like just sniffing him, and uh, it's just an amazing piece of filmmaking. Right. Uh, and as a guy who grew up being fascinated 
with with Jaws, this story about the brutality yeah. of nature and and ultimately not brutality, just indifference, where mankind is just another piece of meat. That's right. the, that's partly the fear of Jaws is how insignificant you are. Um, to have this so powerfully expressed in cinema uh, was uh, was just I was just gobsmacked at this scene. Yeah, yeah I, and this I, is a guy yeah. who knows what he's doing too. So it's not like the civilian. Right, right. It's exactly. It's not like, you know, like Dingus has mentioned before this idea of like on Everest, those people shouldn't have been there. And that's kind of the point of the movie. So, you know, they're kind of not they're idiots, but but you mentioned Dingus that that kind this of colors your viewing. This isn't that this is a guy who the moment he sees those cubs knows what the situation yeah. is. Right. Uh, this is a guy who it's you know, he's blameless being here. I mean, it's his whole point is to be careful and to know everything he can about the frontier. And regardless, uh, you know, it's it's a it, it's it's an almost crystal clear expression of the universe's hostility. Is, well, he's also a furrier, though. He's taking on like his job is he's a scout. I mean, he's not just a furrier; he's a scout. Right, right. But he's you know he's part of the organization. Yeah, yeah. But his like job that. is to get these guys safely home and to and yeah. to protect his child. Right, right. There's this wonderful thing, and I, and I love that what you guys are saying about this because I'm really interested to hear what you guys have to say about Leonardo DiCaprio. We have a listener named Nick D who has this number four on his list, on his top ten list, and one of the, he has this great line that he says where um, I, I think that he's not always crazy about Leonardo DiCaprio in the past, but one of the great things he he says is that it didn't feel like he was chewing the scenery, rather that the scenery was chewing him. <laughs> Very nice. That's a good line. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a super great line, and and you know Nick D also says why couldn't this movie have been the one in in seventy millimeters? But uh, but that whole that whole idea of what he's going through, you know, being that. That thing where he's a parent and those cubs coming into the picture and understanding that, oh, damn, the mom's going to be here. And that whole sequence where that that bear comes in, I, I don't know. I can't see the seams in it. I'm, I'm freaking crazy about that scene. That attack scene is amazing to me. The whole thing is amazing to me. And there's a certain irony, too, and I think that's part of it. You know, uh, Nick's expression of the scenery chewing him. I mean, I think that... This is, in a way, kind of the inverse of a Werner Herzog movie. Uh, it kind of clearly calls to mind uh, Aguera Wrath of God when they set out in the boat, um, the way some of the men are driven. Certainly Tom Hardy's character would be super at home in a Werner Herzog movie. Uh, but I think the point of The Revenant, which runs counter to Werner Herzog's points, uh, The Revenant is about how you deal with the brutality of nature without losing your humanity. Whereas Herzog would say... That's not possible. We're just beasts anyway. Um, so this idea that the scenery chews up uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Hugh Glass, as much as it chews up Klaus Kinsey's character in Aguero Wrath of God, the difference is how they respond and how Leonardo DiCaprio's character retains his humanity, whereas Klaus Kinsey goes insane and ends up on a raft overrun by monkeys. Um, to me, they're kind of the opposite ends of the same storyline. I, I really like the way you put that because he doesn't resort to being an animal uh, any more than a human would normally do. I mean, he he finds a way to. Uh, I, I don't know the name of the of the guy he he is able to uh, surrender not surrender to, but make friends with over the bison. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but that's a very human moment. And, not- and you have Tom Hardy for contrast too. Yeah, Tom so and and Tom Hardy too. Like I, I think it, the, the place where, uh, to me, the line between them is so clearly drawn. I mean, first of all, there's all that great like mystical stuff with the dreams that he's having. Um, Tom Hardy is has that amazing monologue that he begins with saying, and I think this is an expression of his character, of his worldview, him saying, "It ain't our place to wonder." And then he tells that great story about his father starving and encountering God. God is a squirrel and he ate him. You know, from Tom Hardy's worldview, there's no divine. uh, There's no higher meaning. There's only survival. There are the resources you get. There's the pay you get for the job. Uh, You know, when he goes into that burned village, rather than having any observation or caring about the death, he picks up that watch and he says, oh, they're always stealing our shit. Like, like he comes across as, as as this expression of just mere existentialism. You just get through life, and and the judge. And there's even a point where Leonardo DiCaprio is explaining to Donald Gleason, um, I know where he is because he's got nothing. You know, he's he's got yeah, he's got everything to lose because all right. he has is his own life. Um, right. He he doesn't understand this idea of being connected to a son or of feeling part of the natural order. He's just a man who wants only to live, for whom God is the simple act of eating and sustenance, living from one moment to the next. But there's also the difference between greed and uh, and honor. I mean, there 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 are two different things going on there, mm-hmm. and and I love that that line sequence where he where he's saying that you know uh, he took everything that I ha- that I have away from me, and he you know. I love that the the contrast between those two that those two lines as he's talking and he's trying to convince the captain, or he's, he's not even trying to convince him. I, that's a wrong way to put it. He's saying, "I'm going out. I'll t- I'm telling you why because I don't think there's any doubt that Glass is going to go out on that expedition to go after him, go after Fitzgerald." Mm-hmm. Um, but I just like that there's that sequence where he's telling him, "Look." This is what he has, and this is what he took away from me, and this is what's going to happen. So can we then talk about the the ending? There's all sorts of other things I want to touch on. But so I'm curious then, as a revenge movie, you know, if this had been Death Wish, Charles Bronson would have killed the bad guys, and that would have been sort of a triumphant ending. Um, What's going on at the end of this movie? One of you unpack that for me, if you can. Uh, he's Dingus's favorite movie. So yeah, Dingus, it's only number five for for Kelly. Since it's your number one, what, what was your takeaway from this about this idea that revenge is in the creator's hands? Uh, him floating Tom Hardy down to to that right. war party. It, it's, what what do you what do you take from if anything from from the way it ended? The fact that he, you know, does he get revenge? Is what's the movie's point about revenge? Uh, what if anything was your takeaway from how it wound up? All right, so uh, one of the reasons why this is my favorite movie and why I link it with Sicario, I'm not going to talk about the end of Sicario because that's not what this podcast is, um, but uh, one of the things we talked about when we talked about Sicario on our podcast was uh, my interpretation of how it's uh, almost a coming-of-age story or a becoming story. Uh, this is – this uh, The Revenant is um, – a story about uh, letting go, in a way. There's this beautiful image in one of these weird flashback moments where a bird uh, crawls out of 
uh, his yeah. wife or his um, significant other, his the mother's um, breast, and flies it's her, away. It, it's her gunshot wound that it crawls out of. Right, exactly. It, it crawls out of there, and that's I, you know, assuming that we know that understanding how that these things work, that's her soul escaping, and this is his his uh, ability to get his soul to leave the earth to join her and to join his son, Hawk, um, who is named after a bird, not accidentally. Um, so uh, there's this moment where I think that um, that beautiful moment at the end where he drops Fitzgerald into the water and finally understands what his friend, and I'm sorry that I don't remember what, yeah, and I'm calling him friend in air quotes because I, I just don't remember the character's name. I, I doubt him. they even say it, by the way. I mean, there's so much nonverbal stuff in this movie. I, right. I doubt that right. actor even had any of what, what his friend taught him about revenge being in the creator's hands is that he finally understands that at this moment, that, that he, could, he could have this struggle for eternity. And that's what it feels like is happening in that moment, that this struggle could go on for eternity. We're going to chop off each other's fingers. We're going to chop off each other's legs. We're just going to keep chopping at each other because this is a struggle between good and evil. And at some point, good has to say, all right, it's not in my hands. This is not in my hands. This is in the hands of the universe. And I think that's what happens, which enables him to um, move on to, to the next level of of existence, and I think that's what's going on, uh, uh, which is a very different feeling at the end of Sicario, and one of the reasons why I love both of these movies so much. Um, as a parent, uh, not only as a parent, but also as a film goer, is that feeling of him going up into the woods, seeing her, and uh, I mean. <sighs> I don't know. There's that moment where he's hugging the tree in that weird wrecked out church. Um, that end moment of the movie reminds me of that, but in a more transcendent way. Part, part of what I'm wondering about, though, Dingus, is if he's learned that the revenge is in the hand of the creator and maybe it's not a good idea to kill people because they killed someone who loves you or whatever. Uh, it seems to me like he did – for all intents and purposes, he definitely kills Fitzgerald, and the fact that the final blow is him just floating, giving Fitzgerald over to a war party who he knows is going to kill Fitzgerald. Like he's he doesn't. It seems to me like he's not doing anything. He he's barely one step removed from Fitzgerald's actual death. Um, I think it's that he realizes that he can't do that. It's not that he's not going to. I mean, he could do the physical act of doing it, just as he killed the bear. But it's 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 that he realizes that that is not possible to kill to kill that that has de- which has destroyed your son, which is a whole host of things, including the world, including you know nature. Um, a lot of things transpired for your son's death to happen and for you to get here. I think it's more of an understanding of that he cannot do it, that it's not in his hands. I mean, he could he could do the physical act, but I think it's more of an action of, this is not possible. I will transfer this to the universe. I don't know. It's That, that might sound touchy-feely, um, but I well, think that's why he's able to transcend. There's a lot of stuff in here that you could definitely call touchy-feely, but that's just one that I and I, I'm not even sure I was supposed to get it, but I just didn't really get the point of. I didn't get what. The, so the Indians of the universe, then. No, no, that. they're they're 
taking care of it for a different reason. I mean, it's out of his hands now. But see, they're also not taking care of it for a different reason because Fitzgerald and Domhnall Gleeson's pelting party weren't the ones that kidnapped Pakawa. Right. Um, You know, he. It just if if there is in this in this movie some idea of like a moral universe or a do 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 this and a don't do that. Like like Serious Man, you know the the Coen Brothers movie. I think it's very clearly about the cause and effect of morality in the universe. Um, if Inarito is trying to do something like that here, or if he's trying to tell me something about revenge, and I don't necessarily need a message, but I'm just not quite sure what I was being told because I was super into him tracking down Tom Hardy and the fight. Yeah, right. By the way, that fight again, super brutal, all one take. Uh, the second time I saw this movie, I'm like wondering, how do they do that? And and these guys don't bump the camera, you know, for instance, yeah. lately around that much. Um, but he does chop up Tom Hardy, and he does give Tom Hardy to people who are going to kill him. And I'm not sure I understand this. The people, I guess because Pakala recognizes him, but why don't they kill him if they're going to kill Tom Hardy? Because um, she let him – or he let her go. Like he, he was part he of. He didn't just let her go. Him. He rescued her. That's what right. I was. Rescued her. Right. Yeah. So, right. So, I, right. The thing is, they don't like. We see them make eyes when that. she walks right. by. Right. Exactly. Uh, and maybe she said something before. Maybe we're just not privy. And I guess clearly the implication is when he makes eye contact with her, that's they why they spare him. him. Yeah. Uh, so then, why do they kill Tom, uh, 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 Tom Fitzgerald? Then that's what I don't understand. I'm okay with it happening. Um, Here's another thing. I don't understand this, but man, was it effective. Why – and Dingus, I want you to tackle this. What's with breaking the fourth wall at the end? I think there's a lot of breaking the fourth wall in this movie as far as the cine- cinematography is concerned. Um, but I'm not quite sure what to do with, you, with what you are just saying right now. I'm just curious what you, what you think of that because I, I have no idea – how to interpret it or what Inuritu was thinking. I know emotionally it was hugely powerful, um, but I'm just not sure how to fit it into, you know, I'm not sure why he did that. I'm not entirely clear why he told Leonardo DiCaprio to look at the camera or why Leonardo DiCaprio decided to look at the camera. Uh, that, and I, I don't maybe, like I said, I don't, there may not even be an answer for it, but it was just a coincidence and he's looking in that direction. No, I definitely with, with no, I, I think it's specific. I mean, and we we have a listener. His name is Samuel Paulson, who you know who is against us on this movie, and we should have a voice on, as far as that's concerned. And one of the things that he that he talks about that is that one of his problems with this, um, aside from, in his opinion, the cinematography being seriously misguided because it's so detached. And this is something I want to talk about in a minute. Uh, he he talks about this feeling like it's a vanity piece uh, around Leonardo DiCaprio and, and just an, a, an idea of, of showing how tough he is, just, just him being tough. Uh, I don't think that's what's going on at the end there. I honestly don't. Um, but I, I wanted to uh, give him voice because he wrote in as far as that's concerned. I don't know quite what to do, Tom, with that, that thing where he's breaking the fourth wall at the end, but I think this movie... Uh, is doing that 
in a variety of ways for, um, I don't know, utility reasons. Um, but also, you know, why does the bear's snorting make a mist on the camera lens? I got I mean, an answer for that, by the way. I mean, I think that's very that's that's part of what Lubezki's done ever since Children of Men is this idea of here's the camera, you know, that drop of water on the lens and gravity. And gravity, yeah, yeah. I mean, I just think that's his part of, you know, that's part his of, lens flare. But why? Well, there's a ton of lens flare in this. But I, I mean, I was able to kind of think about that and far as far as how there's no natural. I mean, it's all natural light in this. It, yeah. And a lot of it's practical, um, and I. I kind of like that bear thing as a way of making us think this is a real bear. Um, but it, did, it definitely made me think of that moment in gravity. What, what bear thing is a way of making you think this is a real bear? What do you mean? The, it, the ones. it's, it's specific. It's, it's that when the bear is stepping on his head and, uh, and putting his snout down on, um, glasses head, the camera lens is covered with oh, the condensation. Mist. Right, right, right. Okay, that's, that's right. That's, mist that's, from yeah. the bear um, exhaling, which right. is not happening, uh, but they're doing that to make us feel as people watching as right. if that's a real bear. Right. And so it's a way of sort of subverting this idea. And this is something we talked about when we talked about lens flares in our three by three, which always bothers me because it always makes me think. Okay, now I'm looking at a camera. And so, the, and I shouldn't be looking at the camera. Did the condensation of the bear's breath bother you? Yeah, it will. But but then it 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 doubled back on me because it was it was them making me think, all right, this is a real animal. Because <laughs> I don't know right, how in the world they filmed that, but it's it's designed to make me think, you know, this is Grizzly Man. It's not a movie, you know. What if the camera is? Uh, us and we're the revenant like we're a spirit that's watching everything and then Minner <laughs> sees us at the end and that's what he's reacting but do you understand how that's sort of like a, a double like it's like messing with my head and in this weird sort of double way it's it's that you're watching a movie uh, you know you're watching a movie but if, if a droplet appears on the screen or if blood a, a, appears on the on the camera lens um you're going to know you're watching a movie. But if an animal is breathing on the camera lens, you're going to know you're watching a movie and you're going to think it's a real animal at the same time and it's going to mess with your head. In it's a weird combo. Time. Well, I, I think, too, Dingus, you've got a weird thing with the whole lens flare makes you think you're watching a movie. For most people, lens flare makes it seem authentic because they associate movies with reality. Oh, uh, right. And it, so it's, it's – I think when people watch Children of Men, that battle scene and blood gets spattered on the lens – they think it's real the same way that they think footage of, of Vietnam is real. But um, how is that possible? How can somebody think that on their blood's heart? No, it's not dumbness. It's, it's not dumbness. It's subconsciously. Like uh, it's when, well. it, if, if that is so real that it gets on the lens and they don't wipe it off or they don't do another shoot, that's got to be super authentic. And I'm not saying people consciously think that. I think that's just how it gets to our brain. No, but it's, yeah, but we're, we're the way we're, we're programmed that way from having watched right. stuff like it on television. No, no, right, exactly. Know. exactly. Right. Dingus so, is the way, I think Dingus is the exception to see lens flare and think, oh, there's a lens between me and what's happening. Uh, most people think see lens flare. Most people yeah, see lens flare and they, they think, oh, this is super authentic. It's not, it's not something fake. 
Right, but all the, these long tracking shots make you feel like you're there, and it's really immersing you. And it is, it is, as it is odd that you're also getting. But deliberate. I was watching it with somebody, um, you know, her name is Alexandra, and she was seeing the same thing. She's like, "Why is all this lens flare constantly happening? I mean, there's lens flare, there's that, there's that. Why, why are there droplets appearing on the cameras? And then eventually, she said something similar to what Samuel Paulson said, is that you know. There, it seems like there's two cameras, one for wide shots, one's for close-ups, and that's it. And it just seemed to call to mind for both of these people that it was – this is a camera doing these things. And for me, yeah. I'm looking at like a 360 – like there's a couple of 360 shots where I'm like, man, what? how are they doing this coverage? How, right. how are they possibly doing that? And for me, it's yeah. amazing and that, that bear you know, sniffing at the camera or – you know, in well, the this particular movie, because it's exhaling on the camera, like the bear doesn't acknowledge right. the camera. Yeah, exactly. It's just exhaling. It's just right. that, like exhaling on a window, and it makes uh, it makes a mist on the window. So, um, go ahead. So I have a, I have a theory about this, and I don't think it's just Lubezki doing this. Hey, you know, let's have a documentary footage style. The camera's there because this, by the way, is not. He's not doing what he did in Children of Men where the camera is like a documentarian holding it low to the ground while he keeps his head low so he doesn't get shot. It's not like gravity. Actually, it is more like gravity where the camera is not a camera. It's just a a constant perspective, Um, and it's so constant a perspective that it can ignore itself and turn around on itself and not be there. Uh, It can float and go down a waterfall, Um, and the condensation thing, I think – is very clearly this idea of unifying different elements of the natural order. And it specifically ties to a moment later in the movie, I feel. Um, So, for instance, let's consider the irony that the thing that drives Glass, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Mm -hmm. his protectiveness of his son, is the very thing that's his own undoing. Is a, a, a parent, a bear, mother bear's protectiveness towards her cubs. Uh, she doesn't. She has no ill will f- for him. She's just protecting. You know, it's just how she responds when her children are in danger. Um, so that that breath, that's like a representation. You know, this is life. This is what it's about. Whether you are in the mid- between the bear cubs or not, this is just how life works. There's a great moment later in the movie, and I think it's a turning point in the movie, where. Uh, Glass has dug himself out of that shallow grave, um, and by the way, he has – there are at least four super powerful rebirth images associated yeah. with Glass in this movie, mm-hmm. and I think part of that is he's kind of representative of this cycle of life, this death and rebirth and death and rebirth and death and rebirth. Um, the title. He's much – well, the title's a little different. Like the yeah. title does kind of make there, – there's actually a horror movie called The Revenant about a guy who is undead who can't be killed, and he and his buddy – it's kind of a comedy um, – go along, and they, they chase after the criminals that killed him. Um, but this, the word is such a great word. The word is a great yeah, word, yeah. It is. But, but later on, there's a scene – and it's, it's I think the first of several birth and re, death and rebirth scenes where he's been – had the dirt scooped over him when he's digging himself out of the dirt uh it's either then or it might be when he's cradling his son but he breathes on the camera i think it's when he's laying on his son's dead face Hmm. his breath fogs over the camera and then we insert and make of the shot what you will it kind of fades to a shot of clouds super high in the air this idea of heaven you know is this 
there's nothing quite so explicit. It doesn't have a title card heaven, but suddenly this condensation on the glass from glass's breath right. uh, is is in heaven, and from there those clouds fade into the smoke from Fitzgerald's pipe. Right. Um, so I, I think the idea isn't necessarily, hey, cool, let's – I mean part of it is, hey, cool, let's have stuff on the glass. But I think there's this idea too of all things being combined together, of, of the natural order being of a piece, whether it's the brutality of, Fitz, of, of Fitzgerald, the protectiveness of the bear, uh, the unwillingness to let go of life so that he can track down revenge that glass feels. Um, that one little sequence from glass's breath to heaven to Tom Hardy's pipe smoke. Um, I think those kind of things are intentional in the sorts of things that Lubezki and, and, and Aritu probably sat down and, and very specifically pieced together. That's, that's actually really exciting to me because the moment before that, if it is that moment that it happens, he takes this bit of moss, which actually looks like a weird little cloud, and puts it in his son's mouth. And the first time I saw it, I've seen this a couple of times, I was I was wondering if he was going to use this little wispy piece of moss to see if there was any breath coming out at all. But he puts it in his son's mouth, and it really, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but from what you're saying, it has that feeling of him putting a cloud in his son's mouth. Uh, and I don't know why he does that. It's this weird moment, but it's it's not like this, just some herb he's shoving in there. Right, it's, right. It's, this, it's this little wispy piece of moss that he puts in his mouth. Yeah. And you wonder, so too... Names- Glass and a camera lens is also glass. Which is just an unfortunate artifact of the, the historical guy's name being glass. I don't think yeah. I can read too much into that. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay, and you can what about Moss? Uh, what, what do you guys then make of um, – what's with that shot of – he's in that uh, sauna that has been built for him by his friend who gets lynched. Right. Um, and he has a, a specific vision in that sauna, which includes what looks like a meteorite. Uh, yeah, it looks. Yeah. Uh, any any ideas there? What what did that mean anything to you guys? Did that did that spark to mind anything? Well, it definitely for me was Malik. I mean, that thing was totally Malik because it doesn't it graft onto what Fitzgerald is watching at the same time. Well, he dreams about Fitzgerald seeing it. I mean, Fitzgerald right. – I don't think Fitzgerald is actually ever looking at a, at a meteorite and it splashes in the water in front of him. That's yeah. his dream from the wigwam. Or not. It's the meteor that carved the riverbed where he kills Tom Hardy and floats him down. It. Interesting it's theory. Yeah. Uh, and it is it is notable that that's you – know, one of them falls right in front of Tom Hardy. And I, I just – it made me think of things like Fallen Angels and Falls from Grace. Uh mm. Um, well, know, it reminded me of the opening attack sequence where you see the flaming arrows flying over the trees before they understand right. that there are in that there are uh, Indians up in the trees. But there, there's a couple of sequences that are reminiscent of um, of things like Henry V or or whatever, where you see like these these arrows tracing across the sky, and then he has a dream about these these things falling into the river like meteors. And there's a, yeah, literal, they're meteorites. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and also that, that burned out church too. He has, uh, you know, there are definite shots of what look like Renaissance Christian artwork, including a weird shot of a demon eating a person. Um, right. 
You see, right. you see Christ's. You don't. I don't know if you see the whole crucifix, but you see Christ's feet uh, nailed to a crucifix. Yeah. Um, and that brings to mind him. And there's not a reveal about what this is until later in the movie. But him wanting to carve his own story into the side of the world when he's writing I, Fitzgerald killed my son. You know, when you first see it, he's just writing it on the riverbank, and all you see is Fitz. You don't know what – I mean, you've, you're not entirely clear what's up with that. But then later on, as he's making his way back to the fort, he's put it in a, a place where he's sleeping. He's written out, Fitzgerald killed my son. And you right. can imagine he probably has written that in other places as well. Right, right. Earth is also once once a, a meteorite. so. I think you definitely get that sense that he's done it over and over again because he doesn't know how long he's going to live. We have a a listener named Greg Woods who actually says that – and this is kind of a wonderful thing, and I'm not sure if it bears bears scrutiny, but maybe it does. Get it? Uh, He says, I bet I could watch this movie with no sound or subtitles and really enjoy it. And I think some of those things – for me, are, are the things that made me think of Terrence Malick so much because, um, well, you hear a great deal of poetry in what Terrence Malick says, this this carving thing that Tom was just talking about. I think you can get this movie with nothing being said. I agree, but man, would I hate to miss out on some of the audio design. One of the things that oh, yeah, good point. I, I love how the audio design is built into Lebeski's camera work uh, when you see it in a theater – when the camera turns, is in relation to who is speaking, that voice moves around the theater. Like yeah. the camera is not only a specific visual point, it's a specific audio point in, in the setting and what's happening. Um, and furthermore, I, uh, I – so the composer's name is Ryuchi Sakamoto, and I know him from – um, uh, even if you don't like this movie, there's a Bernardo Bertolucci movie called The Sheltering Sky, and Sakamoto's music to Sheltering Sky is amazing, and you can hear strains of it in what he's done for The Revenant with this mm. – it's at times kind of thundering, but at other times it's this majestically sad soundtrack, um, which I loved, and I would, I would hate to do without that. I mean, yeah, a lot of this reads just – overwhelmingly visually but uh sakamoto's music i I thought was amazing and and you know tom hardy's vocalizations i mean my god this guy's performance in this was was just riveting Uh, but even little uh audio touches like when um when glass is uh, in that opening sequence after they've shot the elk uh, and he realizes he's going to have to move forward when he's loading his gun and he drops the balls into the barrel from his mouth. Uh, the sound of those the balls going down the barrel, uh, I mean, the, there are so many great little audio touches, uh, but that is one that, from the, fir- oh, the first time I saw this movie, that's one of those things where it's like, oh, man, you can hear those, you can hear those things rolling down the barrel of the musket. And even just the water running in that opening scene, just how they're, it's, when you see that when they're creeping up. One of the things that, and I don't, I don't know if this was just me, but when I saw this, the first time I saw this in a theater, and you see the water, and then you see the trees, and then a foot steps into the frame, Hmm. you're, you're, you don't really have a perspective for how big things are. And I was assuming those were big, huge trees, and then a foot comes in, and I was like, oh, wait a minute, those trees are that size. Like there's this kind of 
sizelessness to it uh, <laughs> before mankind steps into the frame and gives you some perspective. Uh, but just, yeah, just that whole running water of the beginning was beautiful. Um, and, and even, you know, that a lot of what they did in that bear scene was just sound, like sound of cloth and flesh being ripped. The bear just just breathing. The bear's breathing and roaring, and yeah, yeah. There's weird cub sounds in the background as they're obviously going, "Mom, what's going on?" Like all of that was just so, just part of of what made the scene so chilling. And there's a uh, tremendous amount to go with what you're just talking about as far as breathing is concerned. With you know when his son gets killed, um, you know that whole you know yeah, yeah, yeah. right after Blink. I mean, all Leonardo DiCaprio can do, all Glass can do, because his throat's been ripped out, basically, until he gets healed, is this weird breathing, just this weird choleric breathing sound that he can do. That's all he can do. And it's, I think it's very well set against what the bear's breathing is doing. And it, I mean, it's just, it's so upsetting to watch as his son is being killed, and he, all he can do is, is breathe through gritted teeth. What's the pyramid of skulls? And what were those? Those those weren't human. Were they look like some kind of like rams or something? Weren't they? I think you know? that's just a, that's just a vision that he has. Um, I don't even know what they are. There's a brief shot of Fitzgerald wearing one of them, though. It's a super quick shot. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, of a skull over Fitzgerald's head. Yeah. Oh. Uh, I will tell you guys this. Right. Because of the Revenant, you guys are gonna have to see where the Millers. Are you kidding me? Uh-huh. <laughs> Are you kidding me right now? I am not. You don't have to see it. But one of the things that I was really struck by in seeing where, where the Millers, which is uh, Jennifer Aniston playing the stripper, and is it Jason Sudeikis? Yes. Like do, yeah. Uh, is that Will Poulter plays the awkward kid who they hire to be the fake son. Uh, and even that, that movie's not really good. But even watching that movie, you're like, oh, this Will Poulter kid, he's pretty good. Uh, and I so loved him in this. Uh, he was – there was some buzz that went – I forgot who was doing it, but there was some buzz about doing a remake of that Stephen King killer clown thing called It. Um, yeah. And at the height of the little news bits about it, uh, Will Poulter had been hired to, to play the evil clown. Oh, uh, Pennywise. Uh, Pennywise, right, 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 yeah. Uh, which I thought – Sounded awesome, um, but I, I think that fell through. But I really liked Will Poulter. Wait, they hired a kid to play the clown? That was one of the things that they were. Is that yeah, they were going. I, I guess maybe that's a bold choice. I don't. I don't know anything. Is the he kills kids, not is a kid. A kid can't kill other kids. Hmm. Well, um, not in it, really. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't know the canon of you and your your goofy Stephen King novel thing. Maybe just his fear of clowns. The Shining Kids will fuck you up, though. Uh, and also, Will Poulter is in David Michaud's next movie, by the way. Oh. That guy's really good. Yeah. I mean, he's really... I mean, he, it's it's weird what he has to do in this movie, but he carries it off perfectly, I think. Whereas that Domhnall Gleeson guy, whatever. Man, I, he's all over the place. Yeah, if only he could be in more movies on my top ten list. Dude, <laughs> we get moving. He looks so – like for the guy who's supposed to be the – what I presume is like the ineffectual commander guy, uh, he was just like so sympathetic and you liked him and you could kind of right. see how even maybe if he is kind of a jerk and he's not very effective, like he could lead men. Um, it, it was an interesting – 
counterpart to what Commander Hux or whoever he was in the Star Wars movie. <laughs> Very uh, good. But, but it's I, also a good contrast to that like ineffectual lieutenant that you often see in Vietnam movies. I mean, right. you can see the guy trying, and you know, in that in that in that moment where he's making the striking the deal so that they all three stay, yeah. uh, you can see him trying his best to do what's best and what's most practical. Well, and before, when he's when he's t- saying you know put the blindfold over glass, I'm going to shoot him in the head. Like when he's right. trying at that point to do that, it's, right. But, and you know he's a good man, and he can't bring himself to do it. And yeah, he's not just the ineffectual jerk. He's a good man who wants to do the right thing. And uh, that's what happens to. to and he's gonna he's gonna go out to get Fitzgerald, and he's going to leave Glass behind because he thinks it's his duty to do so. But he's not strong enough to keep Glass from doing what Glass thinks he has to do. I mean, I, I really like the way he plays this part. And that this so this is another thing with this idea of. Just so many things about the natural order, like this idea of a fall from grace when he has a, a vision of a meteorite landing. When, um, when, uh, do we know what Donald Gleason's character's name was, Dingus? Uh, all I know is his captain. captain. I don't know. Yeah. So when he gets killed and, uh, Leonardo and Glass finds him, not only has he been killed, but he's been scalped. Uh, do you guys remember what happens at that moment? I don't remember what happens at this moment. moment. There's an avalanche. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's an avalanche uh, yeah, in the yeah, back. Yeah. And to is, me, yeah, that just represents this idea of things falling apart. Like this right. is this just this is crazy. This is this has gone too far. Um, you know, Fitzgerald is completely unhinged. It's like the world expressing this guy's mental state, uh, right. and just things just collapsing basically. And I love that Inaridu at some point thinks, you know, we're gonna have a an, we're gonna do an avalanche right here. Because that, that that was no accident, I'm sure. Uh, he's like, let's have an avalanche right here. That was amazing to me. Oh my and god! And a fateful gunshot like his with the bear causes right. nature. Right. Yeah. And I, and I lo- I love that you said that, Kelly, and that you brought that out, Tom, because the way that they view gunshots, especially the way Fitzgerald views them, is um, it's like this weird resource. It's uh, it, why did you shoot that gun? Everybody else is going to know we're here now. I mean, they 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 tend to look at gunshots as, aside from that opening sequence, after the hunting moment, where you know Fitzgerald stops being because like crap, somebody shot. Um, you know, when he shoots at the bear, he's like fuck. You know, he shot at the bear. Now everybody's going to come around. And when a gunshot happens, it's it's a momentous affair. It means something. Uh, and for me, that moment where gunshot, gunshots are exchanged and that avalanche happens, I think that's all of a piece. And I really love that the, the way that this movie views uh, the sound of a gunshot. How did uh, we feel about, about the, the re? The, uh... So one of the things that my sister lives in Canada, I went to visit her recently, and when you read in Canada... Uh, coverage about uh, Native Americans because there, there, there are a lot of Native Americans. Like if you go farther up north, um, there's a significant population in Canada, but they're not called Native Americans. Or of course, not called Indians. They refer to them as First Nation people, which I love that. I love that concept. Oh wow! Uh, so there, there was some actual. They, they weren't actors. I mean, you won't find them with a list of credits, but there was some. And this was filmed in Canada. Some First Nation people hired for many of the parts, including Pakawa. Uh, his friend, whose name we don't know, the the leader of the Re. Um, 
I loved how the uh, you, you find out what the re are doing is he is looking for his daughter, and it's this reverse searchers kind of thing, yeah. which yeah. I really loved. Yeah. Um, that, by the way, is resolved too. Like his character's motive, like, like he sees through to the ending of what what he needs to do is to find his daughter. Um, like I loved that they weren't just let's have evil Indians and they're going to hunt everybody. Right. You know, and, yeah. and it, basically this movie, it's all the fault of the freaking French. When you think <laughs> about it, it's those French furriers that Toussaint fellow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's all the French. Yeah. Did you have any weird theories as you were going through the movie? They get theirs. Uh, weird theories. Going to the movie. On your way to it. No, on the way through the movie, did you have anything where you're like, well, this is what's actually going on? Do you have anything like that going on? <laughs> I try not to do that because, A, I don't want to be right and then spoil something for myself, and, and B, I'm usually wrong. What, what, were, your, what were your weird theories? Uh, I, I don't try to do it. It just happens. Uh, there was a moment where, uh, as you know, as this is this re-chief, and I assume he's a chief, because we have three different tribes that I think are talked about. The re, the Sioux, and the Pawnee are talked about in this movie. Um, as this chief is looking for his daughter, um, and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is being so careful about, uh, Glass is being so careful about Hawk, I started thinking, maybe Hawk's a daughter. Maybe Hawk's his daughter. Oh, dingus. It's not Twelfth Night. I know. I, I couldn't help it. I just thought, Maybe Hawks' daughter. Maybe Hawks actually the wife. Maybe I mean I started. I, my brain just goes in these weird directions. But you guys didn't have any like weird <laughs> things that happened like that. Yeah. You saw it with your girlfriend, so that's your mind will go. <laughs> well, actually, the, the weird thing was at about the same point that happened to me in my first view through. She said, uh, "Is Hawk the daughter? Maybe." So it's not just me. Same. It was. It was a weird thing that occurs that there's a weird switch that gets tripped for me that was just like, oh, maybe that's that. I don't know. She said that during the movie. She's asking you. She's floating theories while you guys are watching yeah. the movie. That's how bored she is. If, no, she was, not, she was not bored. The movie is not for her. Uh, without, I mean, she was very clear at the end, this movie is not for me. This movie is for it, everyone. It was a difficult movie yeah. for her to watch, but at that, at about the same point where I thought maybe Hawks he hugs the daughter, and he's, and, and this is why he's being so careful about you. Know, you're, you, you don't talk. You, you're invisible. You, you know, maybe one of the reasons why he's trying to keep Hawk um, under the radar is because it's actually, it's actually a daughter. Uh, I don't know why I thought that, but it, it occurred, it occurred to her at about the same time. Yeah, I think racism against Native Americans covered that angle pretty well for me. Yeah, probably all right. Uh, Kelly Wan, do you remember a Jim Jarmusch movie? It seems like you would have seen this called Dead Man. Dead Man, yeah, Johnny Depp. Yeah, does this remind you of that? Like a, yeah, a, a, a just way. like a non-Jim Jarmusch version of that, wasn't it? I don't remember the rapper. I remember it. Then he was kind of a foppish, whack, whack job character. And wasn't he left for dead though? Wasn't that hence the name of the movie? Yeah, yeah. But I get it mixed up in my head with uh, the Roberto Benigni one. Oh, uh, uh, Life is Beautiful. A <laughs> uh, dead man is the one where Billy Bob Thornton, I think, is in drag, isn't it? Right, right. Yeah, it's it's the first time we see him. Yeah. We see him in drag, and then we see him retarded. In Blade. 
All right, we're in. Uh, Dingus, so did we have – we invited listeners uh, last week, and we'll invite you again at the end of uh, this week's podcast to uh, write in if you had any comments or if there's anything you wanted us to, to consider or mention. Um, Dingus, is there anything else that the listeners wanted to know or wanted to say about The Revenant? Uh, I think I, I brought everybody in except for one person. Uh, we have a listener named uh, Chris Marketson. Uh, that happened to write in. But uh, everybody else, I happened to uh, work into our discussion. Um, and what Chris had to say was that... Oh, that's how that works. What? Dingus, Kelly, Kelly, Dingus, uh, Dingus, Kelly Wand is new to the whole podcast thing, so don't mind him. Right. <laughs> so anyway, I, I, I brought in what, uh, what Nick had to say, what Emmett Coffin had to say, his trenchant observation. Uh, about the bear uh, making his audience laugh, uh, and Greg Woods and Samuel Paulson, who is the one uh, voice who did not like this movie, and I think I was clear on why Samuel Paulson didn't like it. But well, Chris Parkinson, Samuel Paulson, Paulson, by the way, is is not alone. Thirty, uh, no, wait, nineteen percent of reviewers also didn't like this right. movie. It's weird for me to read Samuel Paulson's name because it just makes me think of... Um, His name is Michael. Samuel Paulson? Right, yeah. His name uh, but, is Samuel Paulson. But Chris, uh, Chris's observation was quite interesting because he started listening to the to the show, and he's our, he's our archivist. Um, after we did a topic called Wound Management, and so... <sighs> I hope he's going to say what I think he's going to say because so Chris what I had said well. that the, the gunpowder on the throat, the cauterizing scene, would have easily been something that he would have included uh, in his wound management. Well, I should hope so phrase. because it was in the wound management. And it's one that I picked, and it's a guy named Carol Rodan, who we all like. A yep. goofy movie named and, Summer Love. Oh, just, is this what Chris mentioned? No, Chris. Chris actually asks specifically. Um, let me say that. Uh, uh, if I had to do the three by three now, Tom, was Carol Roden's use of gunpowder in his head to cauterize his wound better than this? Thank but you, Chris. Chris. Asks you specifically that? Yes, thank you. Uh, no, it wasn't better because that movie is is uh, borderline incoherent. Um, it was more dramatic though, watching flames shoot off of uh, Carol Roden. They used a lot more gunpowder for his effect. Here, it seemed like a, a small, self-contained thing. Um, Rambo does it too. No way! He cauterizes a wound with gunpowder. Yeah. Get out of here! In which movie? First Blood Part Two. Hmm. I think it's from an arrow, even. Oh man! So he pioneered it. Wow. What I love about that moment in this in in the Revenant is that he immediately passes out. Yeah. (laughs) It's got to be tough to stay awake after something like that. Right. So, so Chris also loved the fire in the, in this movie in general, and, and, that, and that feeling that no matter how close you are to fire, it feels cold. Well, I think cold might have been somebody else's point, but there's this there's this shot, and I think this is very uh, reminiscent of the things that Inyaratu does is is of the sparks like going up into the heavens. Yeah, and there's that great uh, like you get the sense we we only know after the fact, but that uh, uh, Hugh Glass's Native American friend, I, I wish he had a name, uh, has used fire and arrows to drive the wolves away from, from the bison carcass. Right, right. And it's great. Right. He, you see the aftermath of that. There's fires burning, and that it took that, basically, to secure the bison carcass to eat. I loved that. And you actually see a wolf, like, limping yeah. away right before that. Well, like, burns. It's on fire. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's on fire. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Uh-huh. Yeah. 
Uh, and by the way, as far as scenes about people catching snowflakes on their tongues, this movie has <laughs> Hateful Eight beat hands down. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. And so let me ask you real quick. Is Does his friend uh, go out to get Lynch to lead people away, or is this an accident? I'm assuming it's just an accident, and he was going to like take care of them and, and wake them up at some point. Um, but why would he find himself out there away? I mean, he's he's put them in the stand. He's put this little camp in the stand of trees. Yeah, I like hunting to get him food or, or something. All right, or to get him water. Yeah, I would think you do it all the time. Right. Yeah, it's what I get Kelly Wan to do when I'm in a wigwam. Yeah, that's why he's in Hamburg. <laughs> uh, do we have over unders? I wasn't quite sure what to do with this. I, I confess I don't have an under because this movie's an over because this movie's just so unique for me, and I don't. It's of a piece, so. Do you guys Wait, you can't over? do that. I did it for Fury Road. I'm doing it again. Yeah, then you said you'd never do it again. Well, I lied. I have been over. It's just a wow, Dingus, choice. Dingus is number one of 2015. Here's something he liked even better. Yes, Dingus, yeah. what is it? Right. This is the movie Titus, and it's really just based on the way um, – uh, in the movie Titus, when he reveals that he's cooked her sons in a pie and how she reacts to that. And so it's it's that that parent reacting to a child being killed. Once again, Dingus picking a play instead of a movie? True. Oh. And so uh, under, of course, I would have to put Sicario just under. I just I took the easy road out because I watched this this year and was surprised at how dated it is. And I did a Kelly Wand, and then I'm not even trying to bracket. Uh, but this oh. movie reminded me of... Uh, and I think I watched this movie from the 70s because I knew Revenant was coming up. Uh, I watched Jeremiah Johnson, which oh. was this cheesy 70s Robert thing. Redford. Yeah, yeah, Robert Redford. Not just Robert Redford, Kelly Wand. Robert Redford in a beard. Hmm. Like, that was its main appeal, I think. In a beard. In a beard, yes. Wearing a beard, yeah. In a beard. In a beard. With a beard, I think, would be the... Uh, no, he was in it. It was, it, was on, it was on him and around him, and he was in it, yeah. Uh, Jeremiah Johnson, though, it just made me – like there are certain movies from the 70s, like you know, French Connection and Exorcist that you watch. And you're like, whoa, movies in the 70s were cool. But then you watch Jeremiah Johnson and you're like, man, I'm glad I dodged that bullet. But then all the President's Men and uh, – no, no. Three Days of the Condors. Maybe that one, but all the President's Men. No, it doesn't hold up, I don't think. Whoa, what? You don't think so? Nope. Come on. Come on. You know what holds up better than all the presidents? Man, the parallax view. And even that's goofy. Uh, wow. I've yeah. never even seen that. Yeah, it's, it's the holds up better. I love it. Well, it's, it's, again, it's one of those 70s paranoia things. Like, ooh, the government's out to get me. Yeah, yeah it's trippy. Yeah, well, You know, the thing is we've moved past that, ooh, the government's out to get me, to, yeah. man, the government's incompetent. Like, that's where we are now. Yeah. The government is way too incompetent to, to get you. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the things that we've learned since the 70s. I wish they could the government never, would get me. They could never pull off Capricorn 1 at this point. Exactly, Dingus. Right. That movie's implausible now because, yeah, yeah they, they, they don't even know how to invade a country, much less fake a Mars landing. It's almost the same thing in the same terrain. Our government is so stupid that we've got the, the leading Republican candidate is this this buffoon reality show. Yeah, Kelly Wan, let's get off politics. What is your over and under for the Revenant? Um, I'll give you my under and my over, and then I thought of something about politics and relationships. I want to know that. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, my under is Last of the Mohicans, which has like one really good shot, and then you go, oh. I- wish the whole movie was like that, but then it's not. And my over is vacancy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sam's my, screenwriter, interesting. 
My political statement is uh, Andrew Jackson's Iroquois name was hung like yak. One, two, three, not only me, only Kelly, what are we doing now? Oh, you know what? Now for yeah. something serious about film, instead of this bullshit company. Uh, three best beverages in movies. Not alcoholic, like we did that other time. Oh, so they have to be non-alcoholic? Huh. Well... I don't think you made that we'll clear, although I left alcohol off of my list. As I did, did I. As Interesting, did I. okay. Kelly, are we going to then... Are we going to ambush people with legal... Uh, punishment who used alcohol from there? I don't know. Depends on their context. Are you going to make right. them, like stand on one foot and say the alphabet backwards? Uh, wait, that's all. What? what? I mean, <laughs> oh, he's. It goes backwards too. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'm introducing next week's three by three, so I'm going to go first. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You do I like how you talk. I was just kidding. No, I, I, I appreciate my, second only to your impressions of Kevin Costner and Bay Ling. I enjoy your Tom chick. Seriously, and this, whenever I heard Tom Hardy talking his Texas accent, I was definitely thinking of Kevin Costner. Oh, there was a little Costner in there. Yeah. 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 He, yeah. He did a whole Texas accent. It was great. Now, did he say, or am I misremembering this? Did he? Well, you know what? Let's talk about the revenant. Let's move on to right, everything else. These beverages, we'd done alcoholic drinks. We're not, I didn't pick any of those. These are all non-alcoholic then to distinguish okay. them. Uh, the children can listen to this podcast. Right, exactly. Yeah, this one, uh, minors are allowed. Uh, right. I'm going to give you guys a line from it. I'm going to pull a dingus, as they call it. Ew. Um, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> these, uh, wait, wait. May the wings of liberty never lose a feather. Starcraft. Wait, there is uh, a Star Trek craft expansion called Wings. You almost said Star Trek. <laughs> they all run together for me, Dingus. It was a near nice. <laughs> this is a toast given over this beverage, and before the beverage is served, someone says, "Time for medicine," and they all gather around and they drink. You know how in movies, or even on like haunted houses on Halloween, they just put dry ice in a glass, and then the 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 smoke comes out of it, and it looks, ooh, eerie. So this is served around in little goblets to all these people who are about to go on the final climactic battle scene in the movie. Time for medicine, and someone, says, someone says, wait, what's in this? And the guy who's serving it says, you can see things no one else can see. You can do things no one else can do. And the guy's like, okay, sounds good to me. And they give a toast, which is <laughs> super jingoistic. Uh, and it, this movie is from a time before jingoism wasn't quite so absurd. And, they, and, you know, he says, may the wings of liberty never lose a feather. That's Someone else says that whole thing about red, white, and blue, may these colors never run. None of this is ironic. Then they get in an elevator, and they're going to go to the final scene, and here is why this is my favorite beverage. There's a great shot of all of them in the elevator having just done this triumphant toast. They're ready to go to the battle scene. And they're quietly sitting in the elevator. <laughs> There's nothing for them to do. <laughs> and they're kind of grinning, like they're buzzing a little bit from the drink. And the lead actor says, I feel pretty good. I'm not scared at all. I just I just feel kind of kind of invincible. And they all nod and, and laugh. And they're, they're kind of buzzing from this. And they get to the final scene, and this character shoots a gun, 
running into the final scene and blows debris from the ceiling onto his head and knocks himself out and is out of the running. <laughs> Kelly Wan, do you know of all people what I've just described? Matrix Reloaded? No. Oh. Well, I know Dingus isn't going to get it. Dingus? Yes. Yeah, I would love for you to. Uh, is it Rena Williams? Oh, my God, no, but it's close. It's better. This is the, the, the guy Egg serves to Jack Burton and everyone at the end of Big Trouble in Little China, this oh, mystery drink that nobody knows what it is, but they drink it and they seem to cop a buzz when they're riding the elevator. Um, and then shoot guns that do the wrong Well, and then thing. Jack – well, Jack Burton is kind of notoriously, like, ineffectual. He, he knocks right. himself out. Then later on, he's fighting a big samurai guy and he gets trapped under his body. Um, he totally misses Lopan when he does the knife throw at first, and then Lopan picks it up. And like Jack Burton's, but he's good at hitting on Kim Cattrall. Oh, he's so good at it. I, you know why weren't there more big troubles in Little China? By the way, mm, he can catch bottles too. He can catch. Well, it's all in the reflexes, and that's how he kills Lopan. Is Lopan throws the knife and he grabs it and throws it right back. Right. Um, he just can't catch the ceiling before it falls on him. Or he exactly. does catch it with his head. Well, it's maybe because of the drink they had. But by the way, I watched that scene again. I didn't remember this. The way they shot action scenes in the 80s. Yeah. Oh, my God. John so Carpenter. Yeah. I guess so. I mean, I guess anything. But it would be a shot of, like, Kurt Russell looking amazed at something. And then a shot of someone swinging a sword. And then a reverse shot of someone else swinging a sword. And it gets edited into someone else turning yeah. his head like someone just ran by. Um, like, it's all in the editing. You know, we complain now about things like. It's not enough revenue. Not enough of the best. Exactly. Like way before a time where someone thought, hey, maybe we shouldn't cut so often. Yeah. Um, but man, just cool. Kurt Russell and, and Kim Cattrall, too. Kim Cattrall is so hot in this, by the way. I'd forgotten that as well. So there's my number three beverage is whatever it is they drink at the end of Big Trouble in Little China. I love yeah, the way you see sex in the city, too. I love yes. the way you pluralized that, by the way, Tom. Why aren't there more Big Troubles in Little China? Yeah. China's. It's, it's like having to uh, pluralize attorneys general. Attorneys brothers-in-law, yeah, postmasters yeah. general, exactly. It's not big trouble Steps in Little China. You, you did it big big troubles in Little China. For like instance, Star's War. Dingus, if you had a copy of Big Trouble in Little China on VHS, and if you had a copy of it on uh, Laserdisc, then you would have big troubles in Little China. Yeah, Dingus, what's your number three favorite beverage, and maybe you can give us a line from it. All right, here's a line from it. It's exactly like licking a shag carpet. This does not sound – I can't imagine how something that's described as this would be your favorite beverage, but hmm. No, it's my favorite beverage in a movie. And, and by the way, I, I avoided alcohol. I avoided coffee because I think coffee could be its own category. And I avoided milk because I think milk could be its own category. You guys can do whatever you want. But I avoided alcohol, coffee, and milk, and just tried to use beverages that weren't those three things. Uh, Kelly Wan, before – Dingus, we'll get back to you in a second. Kelly Wan, before we did this list at one point, and I still don't know what he's talking about, Dingus was all like, you're not allowed to put blue milk on your list. Oh. Oh, was that what he – I had no idea what he was talking about, too. Well, you – Huh, so you knew what he was talking about. All right, well, I still don't know what it is. All right, well, we'll find out then when we get to your number okay, two. Okay, put it on my list. Well, he told me I couldn't. Or so he said he made some comment about it, and I, I had no idea what he was talking about, so it wasn't going to be on my list anyway. You can't. Because yeah. I thought Tom would immediately go, ha-ha, but Tom's like, what are you talking about? I still don't have blue milk. Whatever. Anyway, Dingus, yours tastes like a shag carpet. Um, uh, this is a gag from the movie L.A. Story. Uh, 
Jesus and this is he has it's, a, it's his new midnight run. Kelly it's Wine. every week. Yeah, but I never know it. I, it's never something I remember. It's, it's his friend who basically lives next door, and he drives to her house. Um, but she has this like juice thing that she's constantly doing. She's constantly trying new juices. She's making new juice formulas and juicing to try to figure this out for the store that she has. Um, and, uh, and she gives them to Harris. You know, Steve Martin plays Harris Telemacher, who is a, uh, weatherman. And, uh, she gives this new juice, uh, formula to him to try. And apparently this goes on quite a lot. Uh, because he he's just like this tastes like a shag carpet, and then he dumps it into the plant be- beside him, and the gag pays off later on in the movie when her significant other uh, goes over to uh, look at the plant. She's like, "Why is this plant dying?" Uh, because he's constantly dumping these terrible juices that his friend is making him try into her um, her partner's plant, which She's is giving killing him a weed it. killer. So my my third pa- favorite beverage is this one that tastes like a shag it, that feels like licking a shag carpet. I have a question for you, Dingus. What again is Harris Telemacher's uh, profession? He's uh, I'm sorry, he's a meteorologist. No, what was it you said he was? He's a weatherman. No, you said weatherman. He's a weatherman. That's what you, you, you did. You made it sound like he was like a member of this like 70s weatherman. radical organization, the weatherman. He's a, he's a weatherman. He's a, and he's a weatherman. His tool is a leatherman. He's a weatherman. 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 Kelly Wand, what is your third favorite beverage? And maybe you, you could give us a line from it. Uh, That's pretty fucking good. I could just start guessing beverages from movies, so you better tell yeah. me before I start doing it. Blue milk. No, that's my number two. That's your hint. I don't know. What, whatever. It's the most delicious beverage. Blue milk? No. Oh. Blue milk sucks. Luke hates it. This is dumb. You say Luke delicious. hates it? It's a Star Wars yeah. thing? Yeah. There's blue milk in Star Wars. Yeah. Aunt Baru pours it. She makes... It's blue milk. Drink. No. To be fair, Luke pours it himself, I think. Oh, that's what I... Aunt Brew watches and drink approvingly. Like, oh, good, you get blue milk in. Now you're going to be ready to harvest the uh, the sand. Don't you Actually, remember always wondering, what's that weird blue milk she's making? And the, I, Yeah. I don't remember, but I, I vaguely recall there was a Star Wars collectible card game, and one of the yeah. cards that you could play was right, blue, blue milk. milk. Yeah, it was oh, a great card. I do I know what that is. I had a whole blue milk deck. <laughs> <laughs> it's all blue milk and vine snakes. Dingus, does it make me more geeky or less geeky that I don't know it from the movie, but I know it from the collectible card game? Can I say yes? All right. I thought of the card game when I said the beverage, uh, Dame. All right, wait. so Kelly Wan, we know because you gave it away that your number two is the blue milk from Star Wars, but your your number three is something as, boy, is this good. That was your quote? Yeah. So it's something that's good. You want me to just start guessing beverages? Yeah. I, I doubt that's specific to this. <laughs> what movie. beverage in movies would you want to drink most? Brondo. Okay. I'm just going to run down the list of my choices. <laughs> then here we go. Water. Wait, Let's silently or you're going to say? Yeah, silently. I'm reading it myself because I don't want to scoop anyone. Mm. All right, I'll, I'll, I'm going to listen to you silently. Good point. You, I'm doing mine in the point where I think you're right. There. Was I right? Yeah. If you said. Uh, the $5 milkshake in Pulp Fiction. Oh, okay. Really I, do, I don't 
not dislike that. It sounded so good. Wait. Yeah. And it was like he was making fun of it and then it was like Wait, how much of a milkshake is it? Five bucks. Oh my god. That that right now is like, yeah, of course, all milkshakes are five bucks. Is there a shot of bourbon in there or anything? No, that's what he asked. Oh. See? I got a milkshake recently, went to dinner with some folks on New Year's Eve, got a milkshake that was $5.25. So not only was it, it was more than 5 bucks. And? It wasn't that great even. It was just like a regular milkshake. Big deal. Whatever. Did it it say, like, from Pulp Fiction? (laughs) It did not. It said chocolate milkshake. It said from they, there there will be blood. Yeah, $5 milkshake. Oh, Dina stole my number one. Oh, shut up. (laughs) All right. My number two, I'm going to give you guys some lines from my number two favorite beverage. Ready? This is not just one line. It's an exchange, so bear with me. Get it? You've got soup. Why didn't I get any soup? Oh. Coffee. Why don't you use a cup like any other human being? All right, Dinga seems to know it. Soup's not a beverage. Do you actually Uh, really know this, What'd you say? Do you actually really know this? Uh, at first, I thought you were talking about bow and tomahawk, but I guess you're talking about. Um, oh, that's a good question. That's close, but no. With Nell and I. Yeah. It's, so there's early yeah. on when they're it's this is sort of the the part of the movie. And I stepped on your quote, so you should do it again. No, the, the quote is, "You've got soup. Why can't I? Why didn't I get any soup? It's coffee. Why don't you use a cup like any other human being?" And it's it's Paul McGann and uh, uh, Richard. Um, okay, I think it's last name. Richard E. Grant. E. Grant, right. Uh, uh, and this is the part of the movie that's about the squalor and misery of their London flat. It's piled high with dirty dishes, and it's cold. There's no food there. And at one point, you see Paul McGann eating what looks like soup out of a bowl with a spoon, and Wisnell thinks that it's soup, and they have that little... And he just explains that it's coffee. Uh, and when he says, well, there's no, there's no mugs that are clean, that's when... That precipitates the event where they're going to clean up the kitchen that leads to the madness that eventually drives them out into the country where the rest of the movie takes place. Right. Um, but I just love this idea. <laughs> Poor little Paul again. It's like spooning coffee out of a bowl. Like it's soup. <laughs> and by the way, I have to give you credit that it's your voice that led me to that. Ah, well, it's because we've done that. Um, what about what's his name bit back and yeah. forth for so long? Yeah. But you did a you did a very nice job with that. I like that. It's a, it's a great beverage. I can't take credit for it. Yeah. <laughs> Kelly Wan or no Dingus? What is your number two favorite beverage? And maybe you can give us a quote from it. All right, here's a quote from it. Gregory Stark is the son of a fat man. Iron Man. Yeah, nope. some milkshake they drink in Iron Man. Oh wait, what? It's not Iron Man. No, it's from a movie called Zero Effect. Uh-huh. Um. And uh, the, the the beverage at hand is the soda tab. Um, uh, the reason I love it is that uh, I, I thought about this the moment you, one of the well, actually, as I was working through this this weekend. I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff you can do with this topic, Kelly. Um, uh, but when uh, when welcome. Ben Stiller goes to um, his uh, to Bill Pullman's. Uh, apartment, uh, and he opens the refrigerator. All you see is uh, is tab soda, like everywhere in the refrigerator. <laughs> and he looks around and 
finally pokes around and he pulls something out and he goes down and he talks to the guy for a minute. And finally you see that um, what Ben Stiller is drinking like is like a Diet Coke. But everything else in the fridge is tab. It's all tab, 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 tab. And um, uh, Bill Pullman comes out opens himself a, a, a can of tuna just to eat out of the can start, they, and they start talking about the case at hand and, and then he opens a can of tab and he's drinking and it's just so disgusting watching him eat this can of tuna just imagine just eating a can of tuna and drinking this awful saccharin drink tab whatever it is at the same time it's utterly vile but I just love that he stuck it, it's obvious that he stocks his house based on what is available at Costco. He's got this huge bag of pretzels on the shelf. He's got all this other stuff. He's got a huge, uh, all these cans of tuna everywhere. And he's eating from a can of tuna, and he, he just gets so disgusted when he finds out who uh, Gregory Stark is. Uh, Gregory Stark, you know, his father's a fat man. That means the man who's hiring me is the son of fat man. And he, like, throws the can of tuna against the wall. But he keeps drinking the can of tab. The whole time, just tab, tab, tab that whole time. So uh, your number two is zero effect tab. Uh, I went to a screening of The Machinist a long time ago, and after the screening, they had Q&A with the cast, and you're never sure who that's going to be. In this case, it was just poor Jennifer Jason Leigh um, <laughs> doing Q&A about The Machinist, uh, and everybody, of course, and she, you could tell she was so sick of this question. Wanted to ask, you know, did Christian Bale really lose all that weight? How did he do it? What was it like? Uh, and she was so sick of so. There's a moment someone started asking ask that. She said, you know what? I, I know what you're going to ask. Let me just tell you everything I know about that, and then I have to say and get that out of the way. And what, and what I remember that she said, the only thing that really stuck with me, is that he lost the weight simply by eating uh, a can of tuna and an apple and nothing else every day. <laughs> I remember thinking, oh, why bother with the apple? Like, I guess. You know, <laughs> It's dessert. I guess so. Yeah, you got to treat, you got to treat yourself, Kelly Wand. Great bit of dialogue. Why bother with the apple? Great bit of dialogue. Kelly Wand, I'm going to give you a line from your number two. Ready? That's no moon. All right, Kelly Wand. Why is blue milk from Star Wars your second favorite beverage of well, all time? Because it was on that card, and it was it seemed right. it was a really good strategic choice, and also. Uh, it was the first time I think I noticed a beverage in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> so. First of all, I don't believe that because I know you saw a movie in 1975 that included a notable beverage. What? In a styrofoam cup that was crushed up. I didn't see that in the theater. I was too young. Are you serious? Yeah. Oh. I saw Jaws 2 at a drive-in before I saw Jaws. What? You did it the wrong way. No, what? That, ex- that explains a lot about you, Kelly. I, it, it does. Everything explains everything about me. Kelly Wan, I'm going to give you a line from my number one favorite beverage. You ready? Wait, before you do that, oh. do you really not remember the blue milk from Star Wars, Tom? You know, I can see the blue milk card, but I haven't seen Star Wars in forever. No, I don't yeah. remember anybody pouring blue milk. I remember just dropping vegetables. I, in the I can hear the. I can hear what Kelly Wan is talking about. I can hear that blue that vegetable thing that she's dropping. Yeah, the, into. I can hear it. Like I can puttering. hear the way that sounds. Right now, well, of course, you can hear the way that dispenser sounds. Right, you can quote all of Star Wars from the first line to the ending. Of course, you can. Right, well, okay, well, fair enough. Yeah. Blue milk. Well, I can it hear didn't it. have to be blue milk. 
It's it's a, it's like an example of why that movie's great. It's like it could have been. No, it's anything. not. You, you, no, no, no. Please, it's what? a stupid science fiction thing where you do something for no reason just to make it look different. No, yes, I've, I've it's seen like Blue Milk before, and I've never no. seen it since, even in Star Wars. Nope. It's like in the stupid Battlestar Galactic TV shows, but Galactica TV shows, where to make it look like science fiction. Every time someone has a piece of paper, they just cut the corners off of it. Like every book, and that's and there that's science boring, fiction. Though. Science fiction. How about in aliens? When aliens, uh, the, the corporation just has like little turned up collars. That's what makes them corporate. Blue milk on a desert planet. That's crazy. Tom, can't you hear that? Yeah, come on, the vegetable machine. That's what I'm really. That's my actual number. Kelly, uh, Kelly, on what I heard Dingus just now do is the sound of an old timey telephone. I heard a Jamaican I soccer that. player. I do not recall that from spontaneously combusting. Okay, whatever, no. whatever weirdo. When when he mentioned blue milk, the first thing I thought of was the photon Super milk from, from Minority Report because there's photon milk in that. Uh, you don't drink it; you just soak in it. Yeah, it's it's not not even milk. Plus, it's not even blue. Anyway, here's my favorite. Here's a line from my favorite. Ready? Here's the line. <laughs> There you go. That's it, because there's no line. This scene is silent. I went back and looked at this. <laughs> no. Um, I went back and looked at this because I remembered the scene, but I didn't remember how extensive it was. So I load up on YouTube. And by the way, oh, my God, like, could you imagine like doing three-by-threes without being able to just go to YouTube and look up scenes? Like, this is – all the time. I mean, yeah, so I don't we have movie collections your, and stuff, but I go to my movie collection. But so many times, like if I don't have a movie, you can just Google for a scene on YouTube. So I don't own a copy of this movie. Why would I? So I go to look up the scene where Rocky drinks a raw egg. Yeah. And he oh. just pulls out of bed, and he walks to the fridge, and he opens it. And I'm like, he drinks one. Uh, three up. raw eggs, I believe. All right, go, you go ahead and tell the story. I'll wait here. Nope, sorry. No, no, no go ahead. No, you got it. You've obviously seen it. By the way, Kelly Wand, you're wrong. Anyway, as I was saying, I'm like, he eats one or two of them. So he cracks one open, and he doesn't drink it. I think, okay, he's going to do a second one. So he cracks the second one, and then now he's going to drink it. Oh, no, he's cracking the third one. Now he's going to drink He's cracking a fourth egg in there? Oh, my God, he puts five eggs in a glass. And then, and this is something that uh, uh, Emmanuel Lubezki would appreciate, without cutting away, we watch Sylvester Stallone drink down five Raw eggs. It's like Cool Hand Luke. Except that, worse, because his were cooked. Is that all he drinks? Yeah, well, that's that's what they used to do. Like a smoothie or anything? I know, I know. Just to get protein, they used to just think, oh, it's a quick way to get protein. And they didn't have protein powder. They hadn't invented <gasps> it yet, I guess. But yeah, that was like the the, fit, the, the serious fitness enthusiast deal was uh, raw eggs. And I remember... Oh, you're making my stomach freak out right I now. I know. God, imagine five of them, Dingus. Not one, not two. Not even Kelly Wan's recollection of three. Uh, I thought he did five in Rocky Five, and he just did the one. In- he did five in Rocky One. Therefore, Rocky Five, he would do 25. Four, I remember watching it and wondering why he didn't just like, cook them. Well, the, seriously, it's because the idea is they just want to quickly get the protein and yeah. then go exercise. The what idea is you are so hardcore. You know, This is where you know that Rocky is such a serious physical fitness nut that he can't be bothered to cook them and furthermore you also know that Sylvester Stallone is very method because you're watching this guy drink five raw eggs oh man oh man oh man oh man damn yeah just imagine what that does to your stomach I was thinking about this as a choice but I was I was wondering if he did 
like a smoothie or something. Yeah, no, it's the first thing. He rolls out of bed, goes to the refrigerator, cracks the eggs in the one big glass. In a glass? Yep, in a glass. You could see it, too. It's The funny thing is the shot is from his refrigerator with a glass on top of it. Like, he keeps the glass up there. Oh, my God. Glass. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh my so he God. just opens it, reaches in, and he does the thing by cracking it with one hand, too. Just crack, split. Throw away the, the shell. Crack, split. And I was totally thinking, oh, there's one or two he drinks. And, yep, five of them. Oh, man. The glass is a foreshadow to the Revenant. Uh, a little too viscous to be a beverage, but I'll let it slide. No, it's please. It's a, oh, and your, your five dollar shake in Pulp Fiction isn't viscous. Is that too viscous to be a beverage? Well, it's on the beverage menu, and you're saying I guarantee you that a five dollar shake is more viscous than a raw egg. Mm, I went. You can't drink eggs through a straw. Of course you can. Why can't you? Yeah. How big is your straw? Get stuck. God, that's making me sick. <laughs> that would be worse, actually. Just gulping it down. But imagine drinking raw eggs through a straw. Right, and the Kalezi getting all... You know. Oh, God, Dingus, hurry up and tell us you're number one. Is it something delicious? Please let it be delicious. It is. Uh, here's, a, here's a quote from it. Sprite, good. You mind if I have some of your tasty beverage to wash this down? It's Reservoir Dogs. I don't even like Sprite. No, it's... Uh, Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction. Right, yeah. right. It is. It's the better idea of a beverage from Pulp Fiction, and it's the way Jules drinks the big brain on Brad's Sprite after tasting his tasty burger. Where did he and get that Sprite from, Dingus? He got it from Big Kahuna Burger. Mm. You know, that Hawaiian burger joint. I love that scene so much. And I love the way, you know, as much as I did not like Hateful Eight, watching... Samuel Jackson stare down Frank Whaley while he drinks that Sprite, just that, that sucking on that straw, which is, I think, much a much better way of doing the same thing that he did in that ridiculous monologue in Hateful Eight. Uh, watching him just look in his eyes as he, sucks, as he sucks down on that straw and drinks all of his drink and then puts it down on the table. That, for me best use of a beverage ever. To be fair, though, it's really not that hard to stare down Frank Wiley. Yeah, but you know, if, if, if he it, knows if what it, the metric system is. If you're Sam Jackson. Yeah, if he'd done that to, to Dwayne Johnson, I'd be impressed. Alright, fair <laughs> enough. Right. Kelly Wan, what's your favorite beverage in a movie? It's obviously better than the, the milkshake in Pulp Fiction or the blue milk in Star Wars. What's your favorite? Uh... There's a, a beverage called Buzz Cola with three Zs, Buzz Cola, in Surf 2, the end of the trilogy, um, that is turning surfers into zombies. No. This sounds like something I should see. What? Yeah. It's a mad scientist is doing it to get rid of the surfer population, so they have to like team up for once to like, defeat him using their surf um, using their skills. Yeah. What happens when you turn a surfer into a zombie? Does it still surf? Yeah, he attacks bankers and shit. No, he can't surf. <clears throat> okay. That's the whole thing. Everything that would be ridiculous surf. if you have surfing zombies. I mean, that just makes no sense. He talks in a slower drawl <laughs> and uh, <laughs> like walks really slow. And wait, this is called surf. This is called surf two. Yeah. Implying the that the there's a, there's a surf one. Yeah, the first one was more of a dance contest <laughs> surf. Let the second one turn more science fiction-y, kind of like Call of Duty. Thing is, do we believe him? Verse Far Cry. There's no reason not to. Buzz Cola. I saw a surf movie, I forget what it was, with Brianna Evigan. And it 
How did she like it? Oh, no, not Brianna Evigan. Dadgummit, who's the girl in your next? Allison no. Brie. Uh, who is the girl in your next that we love? Uh, Jocelyn uh, Donahue. No, that's... Shido, who you're talking about? No, the Australian girl. Yeah, Shardy, Shardy, Shardy Vincent. Shardy Vincent. Is that right? Shardy Vincent. Charney Vincent, right, right. I said I, it first. I saw a surf movie. I'm glad I thought of it. A part of it first. I saw a surf movie where she was the... I, forget she, I think she was the villain. Really? I bet it was better than your surf so, movie. Is it the one where the sharks go into the grocery store? No, that's bait. It's the one I watched because I thought it was the one where the girl gets her arm bitten off by a shark. Or called oh, the soul, soul Surfer. Right, right. But it wasn't that, so I'm watching it for a while thinking, man, when is a shark going to bite her arm off? And it, it never happens. It was, I was bitterly disappointed. It was almost as disappointing as watching uh, Sabotage, that Stallone movie, and thinking that Gina Carano was in it. And then the whole time, it's like, when is Gina Carano going to show up? Jeez. And she never showed up. The guy making the buzz call is named Evil Nerd Menlo. And Lyle Wagner's in it as Chief Boyardee. I get that reference. What, the Lyle Wagner? Oh, Cleavon Little's in it, too, by the way. From oh. Blazing Saddles. Ruth Buzzy. Chuck's mom. Uh, I w- <laughs> what would you guys think of uh, of an action movie where Gina Carano plays like a super FBI, CIA badass chick, and she's paired with someone with whom she was intimate in the academy, but they've since gone their separate ways. But now they have to team up together on a case to rescue his kidnapped father. And the person that Gina Carano has to team up with on the case is Kellen Lutz. <laughs> wow. True story. Is, uh, is Kellen Lutz playing William Shatner? No, that would be a different movie. Kellen Lutz is basically playing Kellen Lutz as a secret agent who's in love with Gina Carano. And they have their chemistry is pretty amazing. Is it as good as Haywire? Mm, there are certain points of continuity. In Surf 2, Chief Boyardee goes, Kids, if I need any shit out of you, I'll squeeze your heads. Wow. Huh. <laughs> they all sweet garbage, the zombies. Okay, we have lister submissions. Uh, Gina Carano in this movie, uh, I guess to make her sound uh, like hip, at one point she says to Kellen Lutz, This totes reminds me of when we were in the academy. Oh, nobody And at another totes. point, she does. At another point, when she has to go off and um, like seduce, seduce the bad guy so that she can get information, she turns to Kellen Lutz and she says, "Don't get jelly." <laughs> wow. Wait, what kind of character is she? A cheerleader? I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> that is so very. Oh, <laughs> huh. that's so fetch. I actually have a uh, runner-up from a movie that says that has a quote that is so very. Paul Weimer writes, Hi guys, this was the pause that refreshes of a 3 by 3 topic, Kelly. I didn't plan to see The Revenant, but I will definitely send in a comment, as Tom suggests, when I do see the movie the same week. Favorite beverages, number three, Wait, the Sprite. Did, do. did we get a Paul Weimer con- comment on The Revenant? Uh, Alright. Thanks, Paul, for getting us all wound up and then not following through. Yeah, he didn't send one. Kelly, what a jerk. It was the pause. 
that he sent. Number three from Paul Weimer, the sprite that Brett has in Pulp Fiction and that Jules Sam Jackson borrows to wash down the Big Kahuna burger. Hit the spot. Number two, in Avengers Age of Ultron, the Asgardian liquor that Thor offers to Captain America and a few others who clamor to try it, including Stan Lee's cameo World War II veteran character. More potent than a pan-galactic gargle blaster. It's a Hitchhiker's Guide reference. Nerds. Number one, the psychotropic drug-laced milk that Alex, Malcolm McDowell, and his cronies ah. drink at the Corova Milk Bar, the drink of choice for when you're ready for some ultraviolence. Way better than blue milk. I like that one. He's talking about Tank Girl, right? Chris Hobson writes, my favorite beverage scene is the preparation of the life essence beverage in Dark Crystal. What? A defenseless podling is strapped to a chair. A laser shoots out of a large crystal into his eyes, and life essence juice flows through a tube into a jar. The oh. Skeksy doctor helpfully explains the science while juicing the podling. Wow. We don't know what a podling is, so it's okay. The podling seems so small, helpless, and frazzled in this scene, it's unintentionally hilarious. No second or third things. P.S. instructional video here. Podling. It was just a Muppet, though, right? So I took the edge off the... Uh, yeah, but when you're a kid, you don't know or, that. You know what a Muppet is, don't you? Mm-hmm. you go, it's a, I think kid, Dark Crystal might be too dark for kids. Not crystalline <laughs> enough. <laughs> Justin Moore writes, Hi, guys. Great podcast, long-time listener. Number three, the small glass of Coke and Die Hard. What? What? Huh? What? Huh? What? Uh, in this movie, an actor named Hart Bogner plays Ellis, a stereotypical coked-up 80s guy, midway through the movie. Yeah, the... I forgot, what's his name? The guy. Hans Booby. Booby. Yeah. Like most scenes in Die Hard, this one alternates between funny and tense, and the glass of coke contributes to that. And even being there is funny in the first place, because it means the terrorist rewarding him for betraying his so-called best friend by giving him a tiny glass of soda. He <laughs> brings the drink and pours it off, so does a good job of acting unhappy. Like, this is the dumbest thing I would have ever Then when Bruce Willis stops talking and Hart Bachner realizes he's in trouble, he takes a nervous sip of Coke, which draws out the tension. Then he gets shot. Farewell, Ellis. We barely knew you. What we did know was all bad, and that Rolex you gave Bonnie Bedelia nearly got her killed at the end. But you didn't deserve this. (laughs) Nice. Number two, the poison drink in Casino Royale. Mads Mikkelsen is losing at poker to Daniel Craig, so he has Ivana Milicevic poison Craig's drink. I think the drink itself is some sort of martini, but can't be sure because I know embarrassingly little about fancy alcoholic beverages. Anyway, I like the way the thing looks because it has an orange peel or something spiraling around inside it. That's the poison. Oh, the poison. Yeah, okay, go ahead. Poison orange peel. The drink also leads to a really neat sequence. First, while Craig's drinking, it looks over to Eva Green. She's mad at him for various reasons and gives him a hilarious death stare. After Craig drinks it and realizes what's happened, we get a great shot of Mads Mickelson smiling without really smiling, and then some entertaining stuff with Craig trying to act casual while he's dying of poison. <laughs> poison drink reminds me of something, but I'll get back to it. It all culminates when Craig's in his car on the phone with MI6, and he's ordered to defibrillate himself. The defibrillator doesn't work. He falls unconscious, and then we get a great character moment where Eva Green shows up and saves him. The drink does a lot of positive things for the movie. It lets the villain get the upper hand for a bit, making him more dangerous. It shows that Eva Green definitely does care about Bond, even though she's furious with him. It makes Craig and Green even after he saved her from some gunmen in an earlier scene, and it ends with a funny sequence where Craig thanks Eva Green in the movie, cuts back to the analyst at MI6, still hanging out on the phone, who think that he's thanking them. 
This, carry on. This is Chris Hobson. Yes. Chris, please write in with more no, stuff. No, it's Justin Moore. I'm sorry. It's Justin. Justin, please write in with more stuff for Kelly Wan to read. Yeah, please do. That <laughs> was right, so wonderful. There's another one, right? That was three. That was two out of three. Number one, the beer that Jonah Hill pours into laundry detergent containers in Superbad. Uh-huh. After Joe Lowe truly <laughs> takes the characters to a crazy party where a bunch of adults are fighting and doing drugs, Jonah Hill has to figure out a way to steal alcohol. He goes down the basement, finds a fridge full of beer, empty two, two containers of laundry detergent, starts pouring the beer into them. This is the gag that keeps on giving for most of the rest of the movie. First, the creation of the detergent beer is pretty gross, but it's funny because it's definitely something a desperate for alcohol teenager would do. Second, when the adult running the party asks Jonah Hill why he's carrying detergent around, Jonah Hill responds, dude, I've got blood on my pants. And of course, you'll remember why that blood. <laughs> Third, when the two storylines intersect and Bill Hader hits Jonah Hill with his car, some of the detergent beer spills out onto the road. Bill Hader touches the wet asphalt, then licks his fingers to identify the liquid, which is also gross and kind of funny. Fourth, the homeless guy who was riding in Seth Rogen and Bill Hader's cop car gets away with a container of the beer and is later seen from it on a public bus. Fifth, during the party montage, there's several scenes of Jonah Hill also chugging the detergent beer, despite the availability of drinks that probably taste less like soap. Add all these things up, you've got my favorite beverage from a movie. Oh, my list sucks now. Fuck! That, that, did, uh, that did upstage all of us, yeah. That's good. Right, so if I just come up with a good topic, the listeners... Mom, the moment in Superbad I hate so much. Which one? The, when he's drinking the beer in the party? No, the whole idea of transferring beer into those kinds of containers. It's ridiculous. And ridiculous. The only thing other than the cops that makes me want to kick that movie to the curb, and I love Superbad. There's no way that would ever work. It's not realistic. Terrible. Dingus is putting his foot down. Dingus, he just explained it's the kind of thing that a, an alcohol-desperate teenager would do. Dude, I, I smoked peanut skins one time. Yeah, Dingus, I don't remember. I don't know if you were dumb when you were a teenager, but I was dumb enough to totally do that sort of thing. I'll still try uh, it. It rang true to me. That's all I can say. Oh, it rang true to me, Kelly Wand, and uh, was his name Justin Moore, you said? Dude, I rode a uh, bike into an exploding school bus one time. Wow. And Don't just leave us hanging. Explain riding a bike. What, what do you mean you rode a bike into an exploding school bus? Well, I was trying to make a point. I don't have time. <laughs> An honorable mention. I have to imagine this was already brought up, but just in case it wasn't, hey man, there's a beverage here from Big Lebowski. Yeah, but it uh, has alcohol, so I didn't pick that. Right. Yeah. yeah. So that's it. Thanks for making such a good podcast, and thanks for letting me share these picks with you. So it's Mo- Justin oh. Moore. Justin Moore. Right. Good. Justin Moore. Pones. Fred Bow. Hey guys, Fred and Lynn here to list the best beverages contextually in movies that happen to be in the same movie. Number three, the dude opens, then sniffs half and half in the grocery store before purchasing it, say, purchasing it with a check. See? They found a non-white Russian beverage in the well, closet. Why do you think he needs the half and half, Kelly Wand? Well, yeah, I'm just saying. And he's in his robe and he, you know, as well, and he, you know, I love that. Number two, Walter just wants to finish his coffee, calmly, of course. Number one, the stranger is yearning, nay, pining for a good sarsaparilla in these here parts. Crossed. Oh. Questions? Peter Haynes writes, Happy New Year, QD3. I'm going to wrap up all my beverage choices in a single movie and in a single scene. This is for wow. you, Davis. It's the coffee ordering in love. love. <laughs> <laughs> now, is he writing in as ill-eligibly as, Ill- Ill- 
in <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> Thank you. Oh my god. What a hard word to say for what it means. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> allegedly. Illegibly, as you're reading it. Yeah. Uh, no, it's all me. I'm an idiot. Okay. Uh, Peter Haynes. Three by three on beverages does not contain one line review of the Revenant. Damn you, UK release dates. Oh yeah. See, well, look what I went through. Thinks he's got it bad. Happy New Year, QD3. I'm going to wrap up all my beverage choices in a single scene in a single movie. This is for you, Dingus. It's the coffee ordering in L.A. story. I'll have a decaf coffee. I'll have a decaf espresso. I'll have a double decaf cappuccino. Do you have any decaffeinated coffee ice cream? Then we reach Steve Martin as Harris K. Telemacher. I'll have a half double decaffeinated half calf with a twist of lemon, which sparks a flurry of Me Too twist of lemon additions to the previous orders. It's one of the many scenes that still endear me to this somewhat sentimental film, along with the Your Breasts Feel Weird. Oh, that's because they're real. Oh, that's from that movie? Okay. And Richard E. Grant announcing the loud clanging noise they hear is, My damn testicles annoying, isn't it? Peace out. Nick D. writes, Hey guys, number three, Dances with Wolves. In his second meeting with the Indians, Kevin Costner makes coffee for them with an old-fashioned grinder, and they drink out of tin cups. When the Indians just sit staring at him instead of drinking, he offers sugar. One tastes them and likes it so much he grabs a handful and dumps it into another Indian's cup, much to that man's chagrin. What? This is this sounds awesome. It does. I don't remember any of that. I didn't remember. Yeah, I didn't remember this movie being awesome. Not a bit. All right. Number two, Django Unchained. In the what? second scene of the movie, Christoph Waltz. I remember this part. Tells Jimmy Fox about his job as a bounty hunter while pouring beer for them both in an empty saloon. I love the close-ups of him skimming the foam away and looking oh. at Jimmy's face as he tastes the beer. Obviously, the first beer he's ever had. You do like that, yeah. Yeah, I look good, too. Quentin Tarantino makes you thirsty. I mean, I don't even like beer, and I like that scene. This is so stoned. Number one, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. In the opening scene, Indiana drinks poison and has to grab the antidote from the bad guys in the midst of a gunfight. I like the little file it's in, which skitters around on the dance floor as Indy dives after it. Then, once they're safe, Indiana has to stuff his hand down Kate Capshaw's dress to retrieve it. Cheers, Nick. I always like that he knew it was there, like her breasts, like, wait, there's something different about her boobs. Oh, got it. I like the way Indy, like, puts his finger in the glass that he's just drunk out of that has the poison and it sort of, like, yeah. swirls it around. The, the, yeah, the beverage that I thought of from that is the beverage he's forced to drink later on. Oh, right, with candles. After. Arthur Giovannangeli writes, number three, The Emperor's New Groove. Yzma and Kronk think they've poisoned Emperor Kuzco's drink, but they've actually spiked it with a potion that turns him into a llama due to a labeling mix-up. Oh, right. <laughs> Tom knows instantly what all that means. Well, this isn't just a gag. This is the premise of the movie. Right. Yeah, I don't that's, a really, that's a really good movie, by the way. The Emperor's New Groove? Yeah, like yeah. Also, he skipped that. It's vintage David Spader. Uh, never thought you'd hear those words. I know. Isn't it David Spade and James Spader? Shut up! David Spade. They had a baby named David Spader. Spader. <laughs> Shut up! Huh? He's he's the, he's no one corrected black. him but me. No <laughs> the black corrected him but me. <laughs> the beverage itself is apparently very good because Cusco asks for asks for a refill even after being turned into a llama. He spells llama with one L, so maybe it's like the yogi kind of llama, like Dolly. Is that one now? Number two, Unforgiven. That's a Lama. Bill Money. That's a Lama. 
Nobody in the Schofield kid wait for their reward to arrive beneath a lone tree in a field. The kid had a bottle of Southern Comfort with him, from which he's frantically drinking uh, killing a man for the first time. After money learns of Ned's fate, he takes the bottle from the kid and begins to menacingly drink from it. As money approaches Skinny's saloon, we see him toss the empty bottle in the rain-soaked street. That's awesome, but too bad it's alcoholic, and we already did that three by three. I'll let it slide, because I already read it. Number one, Fantastic Mr. Fox. After he's mortally wounded, Rat tells Mr. Fox he was working for the farmers solely to gain access to cider. After hearing this, Mr. Fox scoops up some water from a nearby puddle and pours it into Rat's mouth, telling him it's the delicious cider. There are certain moments in movies that make you laugh so hard you get dirty looks from other people in the theater. This was one of those for me. That is a great choice, uh, because I thought about the cider from Fantastic Mr. Fox, but I figured it was too close to alcohol, and that choice perfectly um, incorporates your topic and uh, and respects my little weird I'm not going to do alcohol thing. So that was that's perfect. Well, we all stuck to that, even though I didn't mention it. Right. Well, you might have, but I think that's perfect. That's a really, really great. I think Tom said, well, we did alcohol already, and then I, I said, well, obviously I didn't mean that. And well, Dingus is, is better at being our 3 by 3 archivist. He's the one that pointed out that we did do alcoholic beverages. Yeah. Well, I get you guys mixed up. I know. We, we look alike. Nick Smith writes, hello and happy new year, guys. You're doing another movie I actually saw in a theater, so I'm happy to participate in this week's 3 by 3 again. The Revenant was brilliant, but I'll settle for your commentary and spare you the agony of reading the terrible bear puns I thought of. Instead, I'll get right straight to my picks for best beverages and movies. Uh oh, I guess he's gonna leave out the cub holder. That's from me. Number three, I'm the Green Fairy, Moulin Rouge Absinthe. Ewan McGregor is some guy, John Leguizamo's Toulouse Lautrec, and compatriots get wasted on absinthe while Kylie Minogue is the drink's living embodiment dances in the sky for them. I tried absinthe several times after I saw this movie, hoping for my own Kylie Minogue sky dance. Sadly all I got was a light buzz and a lingering taste of mouthwash. <laughs> yeah, it tastes medicine-y. That's what I got, too. We it tastes medicine-y? Yeah. Really? But really sweet. Yeah, like sweet lime medicine. Ugh. But, like some, but I don't know. I mean, maybe I got the wrong... Maybe well, you're supposed, to, you're supposed to crack crack a raw egg into it. Right. And then you have to... Drink through a cotton ball. You have to burn some sugar. And then drink it through a straw. And put some bird bones in it. Hmm. I did all that except for the absinthe. Despite the lack of green fairy dances, Moulin Rouge and the scene in particular always come to mind whenever I hear mention of absinthe. Number two, drink and join me in eternal life. Bram Stoker's Dracula. <laughs> Even though she's just found out the mysterious Prince Vlad, played by Gary Oldman as the vampire who killed her friend, when Oda Riders meet, it doesn't seem that reluctant to become Dracula's beverage for the evening. Dracula's about to return the favor, but chickens out while muttering something about loving her too much to condemn her. Considering how big a crush I had Winona Ryder back then and how much I used to like this movie, I know that if I'd been a vampire, Winona Ryder would be my beverage of choice, too. <sighs> Number one, hey, careful, man, there's a beverage here. Luke Big Lebowski, White Russian. Pretty sure this is low-hanging fruit, but it had to be my number one. The dude's a great character, and his choice of beverage is part of his dudeness. Big Lebowski came out at a time when I was going out to clubs and partying a lot with friends, and I remember the drink became super popular. I tried it a few times, but I've never been much of a cocktail guy, and I guess this drink is just too awesome for us non-dudes. I don't think I've ever had it. I still got a bit of a craving for it after rewatching some scenes from the movie just now. My runner-up's Pulp Fiction's $5 Shake, which I wouldn't be surprised to hear on someone else's list. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
So that's it for me. Looking forward to the Revanopsis, your discussion of the 3x3. Cheers, Nicole Smith. See, he knows what the Revanopsis is called. Mike Cathcart writes, hey guys, here's some stuff people drink in movies I've seen. (laughs) Oh, Mike. That's close close enough to the topic. I mean, we'll accept it. Sure. It's close (laughs) enough for me, which is vaguely related. Number three, mother's milk from Mad Max Fury Road, because you can drink it or clean blood from your face with it. (laughs) Number two, eggs from Rocky, because they give you the power to run to the art museum. Remember, remember, you have to drink five of them, though. To get to the art museum. Unless you're uh, Adonis Creed. Number one, tree sap from the fountain, because it heals stuff, plus free flowers. (laughs) Kelly, is that a beverage? Are you going to allow that? Yeah, you can take yeah, that yeah. as a beverage. What? Mm-hmm. It's the ultimate beverage. It's from which all their beverages spring. Because it's is, like, is that the tagline for the beverage? The ultimate the beverage. beverage. I, I, I would actually consider arresting Mike Cathcart. Yeah, I think he should be pulled over. Syrup's a beverage, and uh, no, it's not. Troopers. Oh my god! In what? Super Troopers. They have a. They like drink. Ugh, it's worse than eggs. Sap is not a beverage. Condiments are the ribbed kind. You are. Chris Webb writes, My favorite beverage in a movie is the tainted beer in an American pie. Tara Reid polishes oh. a dude's periscope until he needs to unmoor his semen Beaumont in a taxi <laughs> This is not funny. Stop, Chris Webb. Chris Webb. No. I didn't know if it was funny or not, because it's supposed to happen to someone. I'm livid. I'm so angry at all of you. Then Goon walks in and yells, my brother's gay. Just no one in particular gets some alone time with a virgin. He kisses her on the mouth and she pushes him away saying, I don't know if I want to be doing all this. He ends her a half cup, half cup full of beer that he just found. She says, thanks. I turn to Kelly Wand and say, I've been on that day, white man. He looks annoyed. Back on the screen, the virgin's concerned. He only likes her for her best assets. Stifler assures her he only likes her for the articles. All her worries are assuaged when he takes the mystery beer from her and says, relax, take it slow, and let the good times roll before drinking deep up another man's leavings. Boone, <laughs> sensing Mancuso's presence, immediately begins to gag in knowing realization at his untimely boner. The virgin narrowly escapes, too, that night. Ah, that's good. See? That's great. The listeners are, they put, they care. There's a lot of love in the room. I feel loved. Dave Perkins writes, number three, Orange Whips and Blues Brothers. Orange Whips and Blues Brothers. Yeah. Orange Whip, Orange, orange whips. whips, Three Orange Whips. The Orange Whips. Not a real drink, though. I researched it. It's, uh, it's a takeoff on an Orange Julius. There's like that polar bear ice heater or something Jerry Lewis does and Buddy Professor. Number two, the wine of Princess Bride, poisoned by Iocane powder, which is from Australia, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. Number one, Jim Carrey's special laxative cocktail in Dumb and Dumber. Bloop, bloop, glug, glug, glug. Note that I didn't say the tea in Midnight Run, because I bet there's a little someone who has that covered. All these ideas were Michelle's, but I'll go ahead and sign both our names. Dave Perkins, Michelle Labar. Labar? Labar. Yes, we all know her name is cool. Jesus, guys. I like that he brought up the tea, but I left it off uh, because it also deals with coffee, and both of them are 53 cents. And you got to brew it. Totally different. Mm-hmm. As opposed to a milkshake. Chris Markinson writes, hey, guys, since Hennigan's whiskey doesn't qualify, these are my next three favorite <laughs> beverages. 
The listeners won. This list. Yeah. Number yeah. three, Big Trouble Little China. I don't recall the beverage having a name, but it's the drink that Jack Wang and Egg Shen drink to get themselves ready for the battle against Lo Pan. Number two, goddamn, that's a pretty fucking good milkshake. In Pulp Fiction, Mia Wallace orders a $5 milkshake. Vincent can't believe a shake could cost that much after the shake's delivered. Mia has a sip, and Vincent asks if he can have a sip as well. Number one, Bill Murray's character is doing a commercial for Suntory Whiskey. In the oh! Translation. He's in Japan for the commercial. The director of the commercial doesn't speak English, so the director uses a translator who condenses a lengthy set of instructions to Murray down to. He wants you to turn, look in camera, okay? The whiskey that Murray is doing the commercial for is a 17-year-old Hibiki premium blended whiskey. Thanks, guy, Chris. Awesome. Those are the list of submissions. Tons of them. That's all. All right. You guys, up. You guys ready for or, next week's 3x3? Three three? Yes. Next week's 3x3, three three, partly inspired by this week's movie, so I'm taking it off the table. Your favorite weapon reloads. <laughs> no questions will be fielded. It's pretty straightforward. You guys know how to reload a weapon, or maybe you don't. It. That's great, Tom. Uh, if you are a listener and you're thinking, oh, yeah, I just thought of one, please send it in. Send in three of them. You don't have to. You can leave the choice of three. We're professionals. We've had a lot of training to come up with three at a time. If you have three, send them in. If you have two, send them in. If you just have one good one, send it in. We'd love to read it on the air. The address for that is 3x3 at quarter2three.com. Furthermore, if you want to see the movie with us this week, we would love for you to join us. And if you have any comments about it or if you have something you would like us to consider in the movie, send that as well to 3x3 at quarter2three.com. And make sure to specify in your subject heading whether you're talking about the movie of the week or the 3x3. We will take your submissions all the way up to January 18th at 9 p.m. Pacific. And the movie we will be seeing next week is Sisters. <laughs> I mean, huh. starring Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. Uh, the other movie that came out with Star, uh, that it was neck and neck with Star Wars, for which was going to come out ahead that weekend. Uh, so check out Sisters. Join us for a conversation on that next week, as well as our favorite weapon reloads. I am Tom Chick. I have been joined by Christian Murotowski. It's Christian Murotowski. And Kelly Wand. Native Americans usually go Mohawk. Next time you go on a trip Remember this little tip The minute you get Dingus, I've been on a horse before, but never through that route. I told you to be invisible, son. But not inaudible, unfortunately. I swore an oath to keep it secret. This lie has kept Apocalypse at bay for hundreds of years. We were afraid if the Queen's heart was destroyed, you'd lose your immortality or die. That wasn't your choice to make! I prefer his earlier, funnier ones.